The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hey, what's up? This is Jeff Cobb, and you're listening to Keep It A Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get-go, boy Yeah, from Tampa Bay to the Tokyo Dome This is Keeping It Strong Style With your hosts, Jeremy Donovan And the young boy, Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here with the young boy, Josh Smith on today's show, we'll be covering all latest news, answering your questions, and concluding the final countdown. You can support our show by subscribing to the Social Suplex Podcast Network or to Keeping It Strong Style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating interview. You can get all the podcasts and columns over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tea store, prostantees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong Style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by NJPWEXT, the only browser extension for NJPWWorld.com. The features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level Visit njpwext.us today for details. Young boy, how was your birthday weekend? Oh, man. Um, I went too hard, bro. (laughs) That's not a surprise. Uh, uh, And when I say went too hard, I literally mean like I splurged on like my unhealthy eating habits. Uh, I've been pretty good during this quarantine, but man, bro, like... I haven't been going out, but like, holy crap. Uh, so, I mean, my birthday was what Friday, but I pretty much treated the whole entire week. I took Friday off and I treated the whole weekend like a, like a giant birthday party. So, I mean, and that kind of started like Thursday. So like Thursday, I didn't eat so good. Like, I don't even remember what I had, but I know it wasn't good for me. And then, uh, like Friday morning, Woke up, uh, I got treated to some incredible um, custom luchador-themed donuts uh, for my birthday, which were, like, fire. Uh, if you're in the Tampa Bay area, hole-in-one donuts, they're, like, some of the best donuts I've had in this area. And I'm, I'm pretty snobby about, about my donut tastes and preferences, so really, really good. And then um, we, like, went out to the pool, had, like, a pool day, grilled, I mean, like, and then... Um, I don't know. The rest of the weekend, like, just, bro, like, oh, man, I had sushi last night. I had Cracker Barrel uh, in the early part of that morning. Saturday, I went out to Dats in Tampa. And, oh, and I, I went to the uh, the place in Hyde Park Village, the uh, Sprinkles, where they do the cupcakes that come out of the wall. Mm. So, I mean, like, I was uh, 
I was doing it big, man. Just, uh, you know, I wasn't really partying. I was just grubbing like hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I got some, I got, you know, had a really good time. I got some pretty cool gifts. Um, uh, shout out to Floyd Johnson from uh, All Things Elite. He is sending me, you know, it's really weird. Like I've always watched New Japan my whole life and, and been like this big fan of it, but I didn't like really advertise it so people didn't know. But now that with the podcast, people know me as like the New Japan guys, like all my gifts this year were like New Japan gifts, <laughs> which was like kind of cool, but also kind of like, oh, is that is that what people know about me now? Like <laughs> This is my identity. But uh, yeah, he got me uh, an, a New Japan um, hoodie, uh, which is pretty cool. And then, uh, you know, uh, our listeners did get us the Lucky Box, which we're going to open up here in a minute, which is pretty, pretty awesome. I haven't seen that yet. But um, my girlfriend, she bought me a pretty rare and incredible, uh, you know, um, present. So what she ended up getting me is an authentic new japan branded shirt from 1998 it's from the show it's from the osaka dome show where the uh the main event was chono against i forget who it was against um i actually think it was fujinami and he won the uh yeah, it was Fujinami, and it was the first time that he ever won – actually, the only time he ever won the IWGP title. Uh, it's also the same show where they introduced the um, the junior tag titles for the first time. So uh, the shirt is awesome. Uh, it's literally like never been worn, had never been opened. Uh, you could only get this shirt at the actual event. So she got it from like an official dealer. The guy's name is uh, – Ten Dojo Man. You have to actually spell it out. Ten Dojo Man on um, eBay, and I looked at his stuff. He's got some really incredible. Like he's like a vintage, like Perezu collector. So he's got a lot of really really cool memorabilia. So you, if you guys are listening, check him out. But uh, she was going. Uh, this shirt's awesome. It's it's got uh, Hashimoto, Tenryu, Fujinami, Chono. Um, who else is on it? Uh, Sasaki and Don Fry. And so like, yeah, it's, it's really, really awesome. She wants me to wear it out, but I like, I feel bad. <laughs> I don't, cause bro, like, you know, we, we be in these hot ass, you know, wrestling shows. I'd be sweating, you know, there's neck beards everywhere. Like I'm, I'm going to ruin this like prized collector shirt. Like I, I want to put it in a frame. She's like, no, I want you to wear it. I want you to flex on people. Like <laughs> let them know, you know, <laughs> but um she was actually she was looking uh she was gonna get me this other shirt still for sale if anyone's listening it's like um it's online it's uh from the 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 final countdown from the tokyo dome show in 95 uh so it's got sting tony palmore uh antonio inoki and uh gerard gordeaux gerard gordeaux on there uh from the 95 martial arts tournament and it's a really cool shirt. She was about to buy it for me, but then she's like, she actually did buy it. She bought it and then backed out because she went to cage match and looked up the star ratings of the match <laughs> <laughs> and saw that, like, she saw the reviews of the event and they were like, this is one of the worst events in the history of professional wrestling. These matches are, are literally like the worst matches of the year, which they are. Uh, but the shirt's incredible. And like, she was like, oh, heck no. She's like, I'm not buying him a shirt from an event that has a bunch of negative star ratings. Like, 
<laughs> oh my gosh, dude. Little did she know little did she know that it would have been like, you know, like I would wear like a Dungeon of Doom shirt. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> for like for like the uh um ironic effect of it. Like that's kind of what that shirt would be like. Plus the shirt looks awesome, but uh yeah. Dude, you you have a girl that knows how to use cage match. I think that was her first time ever using it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you locked that down, son. So yeah, it's a pretty good birthday. Um, are we ready to um, open the lucky box? Oh, I'm ready. Are you ready? All right. Yeah. All right. So got a nice little uh, yellow New Japan bag here that came in the box. I already got one of those. All right. So let's see here. Shirt number one. You have a small. Come on, come on Switchblade. Come on, Switchblade. A small Fighting <laughs> Spirit uh, USA shirt from the uh, the Boston, Philadelphia, New York tour. Okay, it's small? Yeah, that's a, that's a gimmick with the Lucky Boxes. The, the shirts are random sizes. Well, you know, part of me was kind of thinking if they were random, like we could always use them as like giveaways or prizes or something. So I don't know. We'll see. Uh, next up, got a medium Super J Cup 2019 shirt. Oh, that's pretty cool. I gotta be able to see these. I, I can't. I haven't seen either of them. All right, hold on. Put up the camera. My, my bad. All right. So here's the uh, the Super J Cup shirt right that here. That shirt. That shirt's kind of fire. You know, right now I'm uh, working out, so maybe I'll get down to fighting weight where I'll be able to wear that. Cause <laughs> that, that 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 shirt's pretty fire. And uh, here is the uh, the fighting spirit shirt. That shirt's pretty cool too. Dates <laughs> <laughs> on the back there. All right, next up here, we have a 2XL. What, what is going on? Retirement uh, Tiger Hattori. Thank you, Tiger shirt. All right. Do, do we have a large shirt in there at all? Let's see. It's the last shirt here. Last shirt. It, it's an extra large. What is – are you kidding me? <laughs> Madison Square Garden, King of Sports, New Japan – Pro wrestling shirt. I don't think I've ever seen this shirt before. I've never seen that shirt. What, is there anything on the back? Uh, just the New Japan, the lion mark, and then the uh, Madison Square Garden trademark. That's an extremely understated and uh, plain shirt, huh? You know, I kind of feel like I got gypped on my lucky box. <laughs> <laughs> lucky box is like, not so lucky. Like, I feel like I took the gamble, but they didn't deliver, like, the goods. I don't know. But uh, those are cool shirts. Like, I'm sure we will find people who are fit those sizes. Maybe I'll I'll try in the medium. We'll see. But uh, I'm definitely not XL, and I'm definitely not small or double X. So that's cool. So, yeah, man. That's... But I, I'm still appreciative to, uh, to you, Jeremy, and to the listeners who donated uh, for this monumentous prize. So... Happy birthday to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And one last thing here before we get moving on to the news. So we told you guys last week about our new concept. Um, So voting for next week's episode will be available at 12 noon Eastern time on Tuesday. So whenever you listen to us, Tuesday, 12 Eastern time, poll will be up for 24 hours 
And the theme of the poll this week is Bullet Club Leaders. So your options to vote for will be Prince Devitt, AJ Styles, Kenny Omega, and Switchblade Jay White. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Voices of Wrestling's Chris Samsa on next week's episode. So you guys go out there, you vote, you pick which Bullet Club leader you want us to kind of do a deep dive on. And uh, each of us will pick match recommendations from whoever you guys vote on. And then we'll have a little discussion on that person and talk about the matches we watched. Uh, why Why didn't you include Carl Anderson or the Young Bucks as leaders of the Bullet Club? Or Cody. And I know some people... Cody was a leader. You could throw Cody out there. You can throw Adam Cole out there. Um, Adam Cole was a leader at one point. What's going on? I don't understand. <laughs> Went with the uh, the leaders in the uh, the Japanese territory, the, the main singles heavyweight leaders. Uh, if people pick uh, Kenny, I'm going to choose a DDT match. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna choose something from his junior run in all Japan, <laughs> or, or some or some PWG. <laughs> nah, but uh, I, I'm really looking forward to that actually. So that will be uh, you know a nice departure from this. Uh, you know how long has this been going? On? Six weeks. Yeah, final countdown. This is the sixth yeah. week of that. So yeah. So as much as I enjoy this, I'll be glad to get to something that's a little more uh, static and a little more uh, you know. Not so long term, so that's kind of cool. And you know, it's always good to have Chris on the show. Uh, I, I can't wait to review these uh, Jay White matches, so it's gonna be really good. <laughs> yeah, I highly doubt that our our fan base is gonna vote uh, for the Switchblade. You don't know. <laughs> uh, hey, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But yeah, looking forward to having Chris on the show. He's dying to do some audio, so. Glad to have him on. We're going to have some other guests throughout the week. So there's a bunch of different themes that we have planned for you guys for the theme of the poll. So it's going to be good stuff. I kind of I secretly hope they pick AJ. But Yeah, we don't, don't want to sway the poll or anything or sway the votes, but I think AJ would be a pretty cool one also. Bro, they're going to pick Kenny. Like, I don't have to sway the vote. We need to dissuade the votes to make it fair. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Fergal. <laughs> Oh my gosh! But nice. uh, and 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 here's the cool thing too with this: uh, when we invite the guests on, they're kind of picking. We we've given them a template of a lot of different uh, options that we've kind of pre-selected, but they're kind of choosing which one they want to do. So that's going to be the cool thing. So like Chris actually chose to do Bull Club Leaders here. So you know that's kind of a topic that he probably feels passionate about or you know is interested in, and uh, I can't wait to talk to him about it. Nice. So, uh, moving on to the news here. So, first thing we need to talk about is uh, Harold May, New Japan president. He addresses the future of New Japan in a YouTube video last week. And um, to kind of give this a quick summary of it, uh, he gave three reasons for not running SHIELD at this time. One, to protect the health and safety of the wrestlers and staff. Two, the ability to use venues. And three, the corporate social responsibility may note that New Japan is an industry leader in both Japan and worldwide. He said the first step back would be empty arena matches. He said this will happen when emergency restrictions and restrictions from the government are lifted and COVID-19 cases decline and only if matches can take place in a properly dis disinfected and safe setting. 
He said that they would start with matches in a safe environment in Japan as well as their dojo in Carson, California, just outside of L.A. Yeah, um, I really, really enjoyed this video. I thought that, you know, from top to bottom since the start of this pandemic, New Japan has done an exemplary job, uh, you know, just with how they've handled everything, how they've treated their talent, how they've treated the fans. But, you know, it started to get to a point where we were kind of going on and on and not hearing an official word from them. You know, we were getting press releases where they're pushing things back, which which was great, but we weren't kind of getting like, what is your stance? What is the roadmap? What is happening? And so um, Harold May uh, kind of stepping in and doing this kind of really showed his like, you know, him as a leader, you know, as like the, the, the face of the company being the, the person to kind of step out and, uh, you know, uh, just speak to everybody very candidly about what the company's stance is, what the roadmap back is, um, what their financial situation looks like. And, um, I, I thought he did a really great job. Yeah. I thought it was a great video. Um, he could have stepped his uh, tech game up, maybe use some PowerPoint slides instead of you know, just pulling off this stuff off of a whiteboard or whatever he was using. But yeah, I thought he was very well spoken, had some great solid points, and it was a great video kind of addressing everything. I'm glad he didn't use, uh, you know, more of the budget for the high tech, you know, shenanigans. See, Jeremy, that's why you're not running the company because you you'd be spending more money, <laughs> run them into the ground, man. Like fiscal responsibility, son. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's why he's in charge. No, but uh, on that note, he, I guess I've got a couple questions. So one. They're saying that they're going to eventually do empty arena shows. And, you know, once those three criteria are kind of met, they'll come back. And then eventually they'll do like a social distanced, uh, you know, limited engagement sort of, uh, you know, opening for fans to come back to matches once things are in place. My question is, I think it's great, you know, if they end up doing um, empty arena shows. But I guess my question is, because they they don't have the same kind of like say quote unquote television deal that they're dependent on for their well being the way that say like AEW or WWE does in the states. Aside from the notoriety, how do they benefit? Like, because I I can't imagine they're making money off of it if they run a show, you know. And in fact, I think in many cases they'll be spending more money to procure the uh, you know, the venue. Am I? Does that sound wrong or am I right? I, I don't know how no, to make money. You're definitely off right. It. And that's something I wasn't even thinking about with all this empty arena stuff. It's like, yeah, they're going to be spending money to secure the venue, um, spending money yeah. on, on the production, the camera crew to get it streamed on New Japan World. Um, the I mean, talent? Yeah, I mean, well, they've, they've been paying the talent, but still, yeah, um, the talent. But I'm, but I'm sure downside guarantees, downside guarantees are not the same as like show dates and stuff like that. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of costs, and so how – I mean, obviously, they'll have the New Japan World revenue, but there's, there's not the revenue of, you know, live gate uh, people coming to watch the show. I mean, trust me, there's nobody that's, you know, more hungry for, you know, New Japan wrestling than, than us, but at the same time, I don't want them to do something that uh, will hurt the, you know, financial standings of the company, so I'm just wondering – long term how sustainable that is or what the game plan is is that something that like they'll run a couple shows that way is that just how it's going to be for the rest of the year you know i would like some more definitive answers once i'm sure they're trying to figure it out as well but 
you know, th- that's kind of my question. I guess the other thing I'm wondering is, and we've kind of talked about this in the past, like, what does it look like when they come back? You know, um, I think the biggest thing is, you know, this is a company that's known for tournaments. G1's on the horizon. I think if they come back for, say, G1, there's really no storytelling that you need to, no storylines that need to be in place. It's kind of just like, we've been on hiatus. Here's the G1. Let's run it. I think that's maybe the easiest way to kind of get things back. But then at the same time, think about an empty arena G1. How enticing is that idea to, to, you know, is that better than not having a G1 or, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Kind of mixed feelings, man. I mean, like we mentioned last week, I think new Japan would do a great job in producing an empty arena show. I think it would be very similar to, uh, you know, the UFC shows that have been running out of Jacksonville. Um, it'll be, you know, feel like you're watching a sport and the guys will be focusing on wrestling and, you know, not trying to pretend like they're talking to a crowd or pandering to a crowd that's not there. Um, mm. So I think it'll, it'll be a great production. But at the same time, you know, G1, best tournament of the year. It's where most of the match of the year candidates come out of, and, you know, a big part of a match is the crowd reaction, the atmosphere, and you know, the New Japan guys, obviously, they're super talented, um, super high work rate, and they, they will go out there and they will tell a story, and I'm sure it would be a great tournament if it was all empty arena, but at the same time, it's like that that passion, that emotion from the fans at that moment where you want Abushi to beat Jay White, like, <laughs> you, you, yeah. you, don't, you don't get that without the crowd. So, yeah, kind of mixed feelings there. And, and, you know, you're absolutely right, but at the same time, you know, you look back at the history of wrestling, and there are our times, as much as wrestling companies like to live in a bubble and like to live in a self-contained universe, you know, that's not always realistic when it comes to cultural events, you know, societal shifts and, and you know, big historical moments. Obviously, a pandemic is, you know, something that kind of fits in that criteria. Um, we've seen where there have been shifts in the business, whether it be economic or working style or, you know, uh, different attitudes, you know, just things that have happened externally that have affected the way business has been run or the way people work or the way that fans perceive the performers. And so I guess what I'm thinking is if they do end up doing empty arena shows, there's a very good chance it ends up heavily affecting the way that New Japan is presented as opposed to how it was prior to the pandemic and how they work their matches, the style of their work, the length of the matches. If they want to uh, – because I can't imagine Okada going out there and having you know 45-minute epics in this kind of environment. Uh, if, if they try that, they'll fail. I'll, I'll be pretty honest with you. And I can't imagine a lot of the – you know that's the thing. Like If you look at New Japan over the past few years, and it's something we love because they do it on such a high level and it's great, but – a lot of their main event style matches are just very, very long and arduous and kind of epic. And that's great in the right scenario and setting. But I think in empty arena, you, it'll be very, very hard to pull something like that off. So I'm just wondering what the work even looks like. It might be beneficial to, in some ways to kind of see what these guys, you know, come up with working in an empty arena. Part of me is kind of excited by that, but there's another part of me that's like, well, what if, I mean, I'm sure there will be some misses, and this is a company that we're not used to seeing a lot of misses from. You know what I mean? Right. So I'm wondering what – I'm wondering – and we – that's another thing too is that New Japan can be very stubborn 
and very conservative in the way that they handle things, they might not adjust anything, and that might be a mistake. So, yeah, I, I'm very curious what M- New Japan Empty Arena wrestling looks like, you know? Yeah. And so, talking about G1, um, got some comments here from Hiromu Takahashi in Tokyo Sports, and uh, he has a wild idea. He wants to hold a junior and heavyweight festival at the same uh, same time. His idea is to hold best super junior and G1 climax at the same time in October, with each tournament final taking place on the same day. Uh, we have a question here from Reddit user PSA91. What do you think about Haruma's recent comments that the best of super juniors shouldn't be canceled and postponed, possibly having the finals on the same night as the G1 finals? Was this an idea I had a few weeks ago? We talked about it uh, a couple of weeks ago about potentially doing super juniors and G1 in the same tour. That was my idea, right? I don't remember. I remember us talking about it. Um, I feel like I came up with that on the spot, but I've kind of forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> um, bro, Hiromu's fucking listen to our podcast. <laughs> well, well, dude, uh, you know, Japan is one of the top countries that Social Suplex Podcast Network is listened to. So um, I, I mean, like, stranger things have happened. We've, there have been people that we, have found out, listen to this podcast, and we're like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> over, over the years, it's been kind of crazy. So, I mean, it, that that wouldn't be too shocking. But uh, And he's been working yeah, on, I mean, Eng- on English, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that that would be incredible. You know, Super Juniors is obviously uh, a tournament that we love passionately. Uh, we love covering it every year, and I hate the idea that it wouldn't be happening. Um, I mean, we've thrown out every scenario for how they could do it, whether it be using, you know, all their just, you know, local guys that they have in the country, uh, bringing in talent from other uh, companies within Japan, you know, uh, postponing it to a later date. I mean, there's a lot of different ways they could go about doing it, uh, but I don't want them to cancel it. I hope it's just postponed. And I think the idea is awesome because, you know, if they end up doing a G1, why not do a Super Juniors at the same time? More bang for your buck. I mean, that would be you'd get a ton of singles, you know, matches for, you know, the twenty or so nights or however long it goes. And everyone has a goal that they're like it gives everyone a purpose to be on the card, why they're there, why they're working. And we don't have to worry so much about like the externals. I mean, you look at like say AEW. Um, and also NXT, I mean, two companies that are doing tournaments, I think like WWE is doing one on their main roster and that's been something that's like simple form storytelling that just gives guys a simple motivation why they're wrestling and, and the story kind of tells itself, uh, you know, you do that on the bigger scale with new Japan because you've got their two most prestigious tournaments happening simultaneously. I mean, that gives you a, a real reason to invest and it's, you know, and, and not nitpick so much the environment because the matches have meaning. Right. And, you know, you, you kind of lose those undercard matches, those tag matches that kind of set up the other matches. But I think it's kind of worth it if you are having, you know, best super junior matches on the undercard and, you know, you have a stack card of, you know, four junior matches, four heavyweight matches from both tournaments. That's true, but you know there are some creative things they could be doing as well. Um, you know, we've talked about seconds, and we see seconding happen a lot during tournaments. 
and maybe if you want to build something up, maybe you have like the heavyweights coming out to second some of their junior stablemates to kind of like create tension. I'm not saying like there should be tons of interference and stuff like that, but I'm saying like, you know, maybe maybe a post match attack between the two rivals on the opposite ends. You know, you could do things like that. Yeah, they can definitely do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we love the idea. I hope uh, New Japan, you know, that their corporate office, uh, you know, reacts favorably to this and you know considers doing it. Uh, but then again, we don't know when they're coming back. I mean. Uh, we're just being very hopeful at this point because I mean they could come back or you know G1 could be the next one to get the axe. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. Also, speaking of which, I know this is off t- topic, but just think we've been talking a lot about empty arena mat uh, wrestling. Have you seen Timothy Thatcher and Matt Riddle this week? I have. It was um, NXT presents Bloodsport. Bro, it was. I just watched it. It's freaking awesome, bro. <laughs> yeah. Like. It's like a it's like an Amer- uh, a modern Americanized version of like Battle Arts or like UWF. Like I loved it. Yeah, it was probably one of the uh, better matches coming out of this quarantine era. Really great stuff. Obviously, Riddle and Thatcher, two of the best wrestlers out there today. They have history working in Evolve and other indies. Um, and yeah, it was a really solid match. Really, you know, that kind of blood sport, kind of shoot style um, type of matchup. It was real good. I know not everybody can work that style, but when I was watching them do that, I was like, you know. The guys that come out of the dojo system, maybe they're not as adept at every aspect of like MMA and grappling, but the type of grappling that they do is very reminiscent to what we saw in that match. And I was like, I bet you the empty arena matches, if they were kept like hard hitting and intense and grappling based like that, they'd probably be really good. Yeah, I think, yeah, incorporate some of that shoot style, but suplexes kind of fighting for submission, some of that amateur wrestling to be great stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about it here in a little bit, but, you know, I, I just finished watching the recommended match of the week, and the whole time I was watching that, I was just thinking about the dojo system and how, how like, dojo-style, young boy-style wrestling works no matter whether there's a, a, a big crowd, small crowd, or no crowd. I'm pretty sure that that sort of thing will get over. So, yeah, interested to see it. So last few news items here, there's a column up with Hiroki Goto called Change Reaction, the first of two parts. There's also a, a video up on the website called Bullet Club Five Shots with Tamatanga, and I believe it's a, a video with Tamatanga and Gino Gambino and some other members of Bullet Club kind of talking about some Bullet Club history. And there's also a column called Seven in the Chamber with Tamatanga talking about um, Bullet Club Seven Years, and that's a two-part column. The first part is up right now. Uh, before we move on, I need to bring this up. It's not on the docket, but Tamatonga put out some very interesting tweets this morning. Uh, one tweet involved a picture of Kenny Omega and Cody Rhodes kissing, and then another one of Kenny and uh, Marty Skrull kissing. And he was talking about like he's not afraid to go to war. And that we're what? and we're not done yet. Yeah, we're not done yet. And he said something about villain enterprises, huh, or something like that. Bro, what's the deal? I don't know. Maybe he's trying to shoot an angle for bro, when, when stuff comes back. Bro, G.O.D., they about to invade AEW at double or nothing. Here we, to, let's... I mean, Tama <laughs> lives in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know what's going on. That's, but, yeah, I saw that today. And I trying was to like, open the door. Are we going to get the payoff to the Bull Club Civil War storyline? <laughs> <laughs> Is this what you're telling me? <laughs> 
Because I'm all about that. I would love to see a Kenta Kenny Omega match. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he's just messing around, if there's any kind of smoke to that fire. I mean, obviously, New Japan Ring of Honor are still working together, so I can definitely see a Villain Enterprises matchup in the future, but not so sure about um, Elite match. So we'll see about that. Well, there was confirmation that Marty was supposed to be on the Super Juniors tour this year, so yeah, that's kind of disappointing we didn't get him in that tour this year. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, one last thing. Um, the free match of the week this week, I noticed, was Desperado against Hiromu Takahashi from uh, Best of Super Juniors in 2018. Mm-hmm. That match is freaking raw. Like, if you guys haven't seen it, you need to uh, definitely check that match out. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. I remember liking that one a lot. Yeah. That was a match that, where I was like, all right, Desperado is like raw. <laughs> yeah. That's the match that set up their uh, their title match for later on after Hiromu won the belt uh, on the next tour. So, yeah. Uh, really, really, really great match. I think if you guys haven't seen it, you should check it out. Then, uh, last two things here. These are not New Japan related, but they're kind of two big news items that kind of cover. The wrestling world, I just want to mention real quick. So, uh, Shad Gaspar, one half of Crime Time, former WWE superstar, went missing. Uh, TMZ reported today that police are desperately searching for Gaspar after he and his son were among a group of swimmers caught in a strong rip current around 4 p.m. with lifeguards racing into the water to pull everyone out. The report states that Gaspar's son was rescued, with one witness telling that Gaspar directed rescuers to help his son first. And I know that there have been some follow-ups all throughout the day, and it sounds like the search um, th- that officials are giving up on the search on Chad. They, they called off. They yeah. called off the search uh, earlier today. The L.A. County Police, uh, which that's that's really devastating to hear. Uh, man, yeah, that's. I mean, thank God. Uh, you know, I'm not a father. I don't have any kids. I know you don't either, Jeremy. But I mean. Um, you know, when it came down to that moment, he, you know, basically told them to take care of his son before him. And uh, that really shows what kind of champion this man was, you know, that he obviously I mean, it's your son, but like he put him before himself. And so, you know, thank God he was saved. But uh, this is a really terrible situation. Um, it's it's horrible to hear this, uh, this news. I'm I mean, it doesn't look good, obviously, like bleak's a very you know appropriate word, I would say. I'm hoping maybe there's some sort of miracle or something, but at this point, it doesn't look good. Yeah, very sad. Um, Chad, you know, I'm not sure how uh, old he is, but I mean, he's still a pretty relatively young guy. Had a full career yeah. ahead of him. Him and um, JTG were still doing indie dates and doing shows. Um, we were going to see them in, in Tampa, WrestleMania weekend. They were on the For the, for the Culture show, but obviously with the coronavirus, that got canceled. Uh, and, you know, I always enjoyed Crime Time in WWE. Had some cool stuff. Um, that's a little feed with uh, Jarrett's show for the Raw Tag Team titles. Um, so, yeah, this is definitely very sad. Um, condolences to that family. I will be, we will be praying for um, that family. And hopefully, like you said, that there will be a miracle uh, with Chad Gaspard. And then the, um, the other sad piece of news that we have to mention here is um, Larry Kasanka of uh, uh, 411 Mania has passed away. Um, some of you might, you might not be familiar with who Larry is. Um, some of you should know Larry if you're kind of a hardcore fan. He uh, literally wrote reviews for everything that hit air for 401mania.com. I have referenced Larry's 
reviews here on this show uh, for New Japan reviews and literally everything. AW Dark, Dynamite, NXT, NXT UK, 205 Live. I always, always check out uh, Larry's reviews and his star ratings uh, to kind of grasp to see where if we're kind of on the same page and kind of what he was thinking on matches. Uh, one of the most respected reviewers and you know wrestling media pundits out there contributed so much to this business, was a workhorse, was a great um, human being, and I am. It's just heartbreaking hearing about um, him passing away. Yeah, the um, the report that or the uh, you know press release that they that four one one mania dropped for him today says in the news that has left us all absolutely devastated. We're extremely sad to announce the passing of Larry Kazanka. Larry was obviously an icon for his writing, but more importantly, he was an amazing husband and father who leaves behind a family that, that loves him dearly. He was truly a good man who was full of positivity and had such a great sense of humor. Words can't express how much he will be missed. We're going to be putting together a more detailed tribute to Larry right now, though. We're all just heartbroken. And um, I did know that he was sick. I remember there was a period of time uh, – I don't know if it was like sometime last year or a few months back, but I remember he had stopped doing reviews briefly and it was due to an illness. I didn't know all the details of that. Right. Uh, I, I know that, he, got, he got his leg amputated. Uh, that's that's right. He, there was, yeah, he had to have an amputation, which I don't want to speculate what that is, but it sounds like it could be like a diabetes release release or uh, related sort of illness. I could be wrong on that, but um you know, like Jeremy mentioned, I mean, almost anything, uh, all the major promotions, like he literally covered like Impact, Ring of Honor, MLW, WW, all of WW. We're talking like everything. Raw, NXT, SmackDown, everything. Raw, SmackDown, 205 Live. He was also covering like Ring of Honor. He was covering AEW. He's covering New Japan. And then he regularly covered Lucha Libre, CMLL, AAA. Uh, he was covering like you know a lot of even uh, WXW Progress Rev Pro. I mean, most of the major companies that are out there, Larry was watching it and writing about it in real time. Um, like that same evening, you know, taking nothing away from a lot of the other uh, wrestling news sites and journalists and uh, reviewers, people that cover the sport, you know, podcasters. I don't know anyone else that that did as much as he does, uh, including including like Dave Meltzer, including, uh, you know, whoever else you want to name out there. Uh, He just the um, the sheer volume of wrestling that he was consuming and writing about was a very. Like is a huge, huge amount. And not only that, but his writing was really great. He I found his match reviews to be very. accurate i didn't always agree with them but i'll tell you this like as far as uh when me and jeremy do our year-end review awards we typically look at a few different sources that we think are you know authoritative we look at dave Meltzer, we look at you know cage match and uh grapple we look at our own ratings but larry kazanka is one of those other people that we look at almost every single time and um i find that this is my opinion that as much as I appreciate and respect Dave Meltzer, I always found, I think Larry Kazanka's ratings are more accurate just personally. I've always thought that, um, and you know, kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit, this show relied a lot on his reviews for the matches. 
um, you know, we would utilize that because when you're watching a match, it is sometimes difficult to do what he did to uh, literally digest an entire show and then accurately compile notes about it and in a way to where you can write about it or talk about it. That's not always easy. And there's a lot of people out there who do coverage and who write things. But in my opinion, there's no one who did it at the level that Larry Kazanko is doing it when it comes to writing. And uh, he's left a huge void uh, in the wrestling industry. My, I never knew him. We didn't know him, but like, because I've been reading his stuff for so long, this actually like hits me pretty hard. I'm, kind of bummed out doing the show a little bit yeah dude my, uh, my, my wednesday or my thursday morning routine is opening up 401 mania and checking out the aw and nxt star ratings like i did that li- religiously every thursday morning to see what larry's review were and you know what what i you know if i'm on the kind of same page and what we should check out from nxt and stuff like that so yeah. I, I know it sounds kind of selfish that like i'm like one of my thoughts at this point is like well who's gonna do what he did and, right. and the answer is nobody is. So you kind of feel that loss uh, that the wrestling industry – a lot of people didn't know Larry, but like a lot of people did. And um, at the end of the day though, regardless of what he was going through with his own personal life, this was someone who you know, really loved this industry, loved this business, and, and poured a lot of himself into it. So you know, that's what we're going to keep doing. My thoughts and con- you know condolences go out to his family. Uh, this is it's a really terrible thing to hear. It was actually really shocking. I, I even just saw his tweets just like a day ago, um, right, and I, yeah. he was he. It, it's really sad. Yeah. So I will be praying for the Kasanka family and uh, thoughts and condolences to to the family and for the loss and to uh, everyone over at a four hundred one mania. I, I will say I hope someone kind of takes up the mantle. What, and I don't even mean just one person individually. I hope that what his contributions to the industry were uh, maybe on some level inspire more people to do more of what he did because we need more voices and um, you know accurate, you know intelligent writers who can bring good coverage to this because there's so many wackos and you know uh, people looking to be personalities and have hot takes and say crazy stuff. But like with Larry, it was just like pure, pure, good journalistic, you know, integral writing, which you don't see a lot of in the wrestling industry, which is terrible. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's try and pick things up a little bit here. Let's uh, jump over to questions from lovely listeners here. Keeping it strong style. Um, Yes. So let's do that. First question here from Reddit user Rambone Slam Pig. He says, "On Saturday, I watched the Best of Super Junior Finals. You guys are discussing this week. One thing I really jumped out at me is how much Will Osprey has improved during that period of time. What do you think his ceiling is as a performer?" Bro, did I not, when we were texting today? It, was that not something I said specifically? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And did did that uh, jump out to you when oh. you were watching? Uh, Definitely, yeah. I was watching it. I was like, obviously, it's Will Ospreay. I'm like, all right, this match is going to be like five stars. Like, it's going to be insane. Like, and obviously, he was still, you know, doing um, Sasuke specials and shooting stars and um, Pip Pip Cheerios and Cheeky Nandos, all his signature spots. But it just was different. He, he was not as well rounded as a performer as he is today. 
And you can clearly see the growth from that Taguchi match up to the Shingo match and just how much of a better performer he is today. Yeah, when you watch uh, Will Ospreay from that time period, and don't get me wrong, Will was still having bangers, and he was still a special talent, but it's like his facials were not as good. His timing was not as good. His pacing was not as good. His storytelling, his uh, feel for the, the audience in the moment. There's just a lot of things that he is so good at in 2020 that he wasn't as good at. What it reminds me of for fight fans, Will Ospreay reminds me of Manny Pacquiao, to give you a boxing analogy. And what I mean by that is this. Manny Pacquiao eventually became one of the greatest all-around, well-rounded boxers of all time. But when Manny Pacquiao first broke out on the scene, he was an athletic dynamo who didn't do very many things perfectly but the things that he did do were at such a high level that he was blitzing world-class level guys and everyone knew he was special because of his physical gifts and his toughness and his athleticism and then as time went on he added to his game to where he became a well-rounded guy so that when eventually that initial explosiveness that he had went away it did not matter because he was and he still at the top of the boxing world right now, you know, 20, 30 years later. Um, that's how Will Ospreay is to me. Like, when Will Ospreay first broke out, everyone knew he was special. I mean, he's so athletically gifted, and he's like this dynamic performer. But a lot of people criticize him because there's a lot of things he didn't do good. And over time, he's changed that. And, like, when you compare the 2016 and the 2020 Will Ospreay, it is not even the same guy. Like, yeah. it's crazy. Blow, yeah, blows 2016 Will away. Yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah, we we both noticed it, like, by leaps and bounds. I mean, it's at the same time, it's not always fair because you're looking at just single matches. as a, We're not looking at, like, all his body of work from a single year and comparing and contrasting. But this does give you a good sample size to kind of understand. And, yeah, I mean – yeah, Will's just Will is so good. Uh, as far as his ceiling, I mean, I already think Will's one of the best performers alive today. My my one thing with Will, the one thing that Will, okay, because I was thinking about this. Um, Daniel Bryan, I looked at his cage match recently, and he had like something like a hundred thirty, hundred forty. Um, Matches rated over like 7.5, which is really high on cage match. I mean, like we're talking like 140, 150. You know, that's crazy. Yeah. And I I was like, what other performer from the last 20 years can I think of that might have that kind of like output? You know, and and then I was like, well, let's look at Will Ospreay. Will Ospreay is like 120 (laughs) for nine years. Um. But then, but then when you think about it, it's like, okay, yes, Will in some ways is more talent, is gifted athletically. But then when you compare like Brian to Will, what are some of the big differences? Well, it's like, well, Brian can wrestle comedic. Brian can wrestle hardcore. He can do shoot style. He can do big WWE main event style. He can do short little squash. I mean, there's nothing he can't do. Like he's the perfect all around. Well, well-rounded performer. Plus he's been a top guy and gotten over everywhere. He's drawn money everywhere. Like he's been a, he, he gets connected to the crowd everywhere. Whereas like 
with Will, Will's really great, but like Will's been doing the same kind of match almost everywhere. And that the match he does is fantastic, but like Will hasn't branched out to show those other aspects that a performer like a Daniel Bryanson has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's also never really been the top guy in too many places. You know what I mean? Right. Like he's always been a special, he's been an attraction guy. Like he's our high speed, high flying, you know, uh, and now in current times, he's our new Japan attraction, but he's never been like the go-to guy that they like put the big belt on and give the big long title run to. That's where I'd like to see him go. And I think that that's going to be the true test for him as far as a performer. I think he can do all the things I just described. We just haven't seen him do it yet. And I think that's his ceiling as a performer. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see Will winning the IWGP championship. Uh, I think he's at that level. I think he can kind of carry that weight. And so, yeah, I, that's how highly I think of Will. And I think, you know, once things kind of get back going and get back to normal, I think I could see him in that tra- trajectory of becoming um, IWGP champion. I wonder if Will should, like, leave chaos and, like, start his own thing. Could be, could be interesting. That might not be a bad idea for someone like him who kind of is looking to break out. Yeah. Uh, next question here from Reddit user Asayo Jimbo. This is kind of a weird question, but I'm curious what you guys think of Dexter Loomis. Was he good before when he was Shaw Samuels? No. Okay, because I didn't really see much of that. I just kind of knew who he was. Uh, we've seen him on the Largo Loop like a bunch of times. I, I mean, did he just – people are talking a lot about him. Did he just make his like debut on TV or something? Uh, he's been featured heavily on TV for the last uh, few weeks now. Okay. Was he – like was he around before and or no? Not really. He was in – they had that, that top prospect tournament that uh, ACH and – uh, Cameron Grimes. Oh, that's right. He, oh, okay. He, yeah, he got eliminated in the first round of that. Then he was off TV, and then they just recently brought him back on TV. Yeah, because I mean, we see him on the Largo Loop, so we've been seeing him for like a, a year, maybe a couple years. I don't know exactly, but like, I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not a big fan. Um, he might be good, but like his character work, quote unquote, kind of prevents me from even knowing if he is or isn't. Uh, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think. Do some people like him? It seems like he's kind of getting popular with some people, but I don't know. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell because they haven't. Also, there's no crowd reaction. Um, when the last, I mean, time, just like with online, like people online, some people seem to like it, and a lot of people don't. I don't know. We kind of are in an echo chamber, so I don't really know. Well, the last, so the last time I saw him live, it was actually an, an Evolve show when um, there was kind of Evolve versus NXT, and he came. When, when I heckled him and he stared at me for a long time yeah, he, and like yeah. wanted to kill me. Yeah, he literally stared at you like the whole rest of the match. Um, and there, Bro, and, I was so I barely remember that. I was really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was like the uh, you know the NXT United crew. They were all like chanting like "Let's get creepy" and like cheering for him and like. Um, so I think there are there's some people, some like homegrown NXT fans, some diehard NXT fans that that like him and like the gimmick. Uh, Bro, but- listen, I'm sorry. And, like, we, we know people in the NXT United group, and they're cool or whatever, but, like, fuck the fans that, like, chant for the heel like that. Like, there are some f- heels that maybe you might want to chant for, like, cool heels, but don't cheer 
for like the super super creepy like ass like dude like who wants to not get cheered you know what i'm saying like that guy wants heat and they're like let's get creepy it's like do you not realize this guy's like a serial killer character <laughs> he does not want you to say let's get creepy like <laughs> You're ruining him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the gimmick. Not a big fan of his ring work. Uh, that match from Evolve was like Chinlock City. It was one of the worst matches of the night. Pretty much any time he's in the ring, it's one of the worst matches on the night. Um, any show we've seen him, I saw a little bit of his impact work. That's Shaw Samuels wasn't or whatever his name, Sam Shaw, whatever his name was. Wasn't a big fan of that either. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big Dexter Loomis fan and... I'm not, I'm not digging this Bayface run that he's getting on NXT right now. I hope he comes to New Japan. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing. Uh, next question here from Reddit user. The, the underscore true underscore profit says, this has some relevance to Best of Super Juniors as there's history of foreigners and other companies getting involved. Do you guys think New Japan should be giving big runs and pushes to outsiders whether from CMLL, ROH, or even from AEW with the Japan Clause, should guys like Jonathan Gresham, Flip Gordon, or even a CMLL guy uh, do super well in a New Japan tournament? Uh, well, I mean, if you want to get technical, I mean, they do generally usually give, at least in my estimation, over the past few years, they've always given one or two outsider guys uh, a high point total. Right. Even if we're not seeing those guys in the finals every year, they are making guys from Ring of Honor and guys from CMLL look strong. Uh, Marty Skrull comes to to mind, and so does uh, Dragon Lee before he was signed. Yeah. I mean, I mean in past tournaments, guys like Volador Jr. Uh, have, have done well. We've seen um, Barbio Cabanario. That was another one I was thinking of also. Yeah, so we've seen a lot of guys, like you mentioned, they, they get high, they get in double digits or very high in the block. They don't go to the finals, um, but they do well. Um, I guess it all depends on the kind of, of you know, the availability you have on the guy. Like, if you're not going to have the guy for majority of the year, you're not going to want to heat him up and you're not going to be able to use him and capitalize on that, that heat that you've built up for that guy. I mean, if you look at it in 2019, Dragon Lee was uh you know lost a tiebreaker but he was at the top of a block with 14 points uh you go to 2018 marty Skrull has eight points and he's tied with kushida for second place in the b block i mean that's and i think kushida was maybe champion i can, no he wasn't but they're you know that's really high uh again the year after that dragon lee eight points in the a block uh, so, I mean, they always, like, kind of protect an outside guy. Um, I'm looking at the year bef- before that. You know, for instance, Will Ospreay wasn't – Will Ospreay won the tournament that year. and He wasn't, like, even fully signed to the company yet. Right. You know? Like, he was an outsider when he faced Taguchi in 2016. Um, yeah, and so on and so forth. Uh, Mascara Dorada got 10 points in the B block – uh the year before that so and if i keep going on and on like this you'll find that there's always at least in modern times one outsider that does very well uh you know ricochet and kota abushi two guys uh yep yep those are two other ones yeah outside of the company winning the whole tournament 
Yes. Yeah. But it's exactly what Jeremy said. You know, this sort of thing only really makes sense if you're going to have dates on the person or be able to utilize it to draw money long term for the company. Um, you know, that's why when we did this project, we talked about like Super Delphin being an outsider going to the finals. Liger, Liger ran out of opponents. They needed somebody. Uh, Minoru Tanaka coming in in 2001, like he wasn't fully signed yet, but he was an outsider that they were aspiring to sign. Same thing with Ricochet. Same thing with, you know, um, Abushi. Same thing with uh, Dragon Lee. Same thing with Marty Skrull. Like these are all guys they eventually did end up signing. So it's like the whole point of them pushing outside guys is usually because they see potential in them for the company. So it's like, could they do this with Flip or Jonathan Gresham or, you know, um, I don't know, Dolce Gardenia or something like that? Like, sure, they could. But what benefit does it serve the company if those guys aren't coming back? Right. It's all it's all about business. So they're going to build a star. You're going to want to bring them back. Uh, next part of that question is the business of people like Mox worth giving him importance over guys actually signed long-term and locked down to new Japan. Um, and I guess my answer to that question would be, well, Mox is signed to new Japan, right? Even if it is part time, he's also one of the biggest, you know, when they signed him, one of the biggest free agents and stars in the world. And he's somebody that had a ton of fresh matchups in the company so they, you know, were like, we can make a lot of money with this guy. So that's why they pushed him because, you know, for instance, hypothetically, you push Ishii, right? Ishii, we all love him. We all respect him. We all think he deserves it. But Ishii's wrestling everybody in the company already. And he's kind of seen as, as at one level. And it's like, sure, you could elevate him. But then where are the fresh matchups? You know, what is the upside? Whereas, like, you got a guy like Mox. He's already at an ascended level. He's already fresh he's fresh out of WWE. Like that was the time to push him. And, um, you know, I think I was critical of some of those business decisions at the time. Um, and I'm not entirely going back on them, but at the end of the day, it's about business. Who are they going to make the most money with? Exactly. It's all about business. Obviously Mox was, had a ton of buzz leaving WWE was a hot star. And once again, you can track new Japan world subscriptions and just interest in the West when Moxley started being featured on those shows, um, and like like I said, it's all about business. He's he's bringing in more business. You push the guy. Obviously, you know New Japan fans and the biz, people in backstage like what he's doing, and he's bringing in revenue. So you're gonna push the guy. Yeah, and at the end of the day, why do you do that? You make someone important so that when they lose, it's important for whoever it is you want them to lose to. I you know I don't think everything's worked out perfectly with like say the Mox experiment because a he had the issue where he couldn't get you know there, what was it that he couldn't come back to the country I can't there remember there was the uh, tsunami there was a tsunami then there was a pandemic those messed up the booking ideas that they had for him and uh oh, but uh, at this oh go ahead oh, what were you gonna say I think you were gonna mention his illness too no there was one thing I I forgot to mention was just because uh, you know you mentioned like you know he might be a part timer but we've seen that he is committed to coming to Japan more than other part timers that we've seen in the past and he's willing to work some of these smaller tours and even we've seen him work undercard on some of these tours and uh, yeah so even though he's not quote unquote there quote unquote full time he was still 
making a lot more dates than say like a Chris Jericho. Yeah. Also, you need that sometimes. You know, you need some guys that are not always there who can be attractions. Uh, but what I was mentioning is like I think that they had a long term plan for Mox and it didn't work out because of things outside of everyone's control. It, it does remain to be seen what happens when he does come back. But like in my opinion, I think he's someone that could lose to like say Naito or Okada, and it matter. Right. Because he's beaten Suzuki and he's beaten Juice and guys like that. You know what I mean? He, so he tapped out Shingo. Yeah, he tapped out Shingo. So they that's the idea. It's like they're building him up as this big credible star so that he can do the job. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So that's the deal. Yeah. Uh next question here from Reddit Euler Just a Little Bear Zero One. Having finished review of the whole history of Best of Super Juniors, who impressed you more than expected? And were there any years that stood out for you that were flat out the wrong person won? Uh, when it comes to impressed me more than I expected, I would say two names come up, come to mind for me. One is Taguchi. The second is El Samurai. Okay. Uh, for me, I would say Taguchi is also one too. Um, cause just, you know, we always hear about big Matt, big Matt Taguchi and we have seen some of that, but to see him in his prime and just how great he was, I was uh, pleasantly surprised by that. And for me, the, the other name would be uh, Koji Kanemoto, just because I never really knew much about Koji Kanemoto. <laughs> and as we're doing these reviews, you see he's like in almost, uh, he's in a ton of finals. He's, con- he's like pretty much in a majority Bro, of these. Se- seven finals. <laughs> yeah, seven finals. He's pretty much been in the majority of the tournaments that have happened in the past and high point totals even in the years when he wasn't in the finals. Uh, yeah, and just seeing you know he wrestled different ty- styles of matchups, and he threw in the high flying. He could do the Enokiism style, like he was a very well uh, well rounded performer. Um, had some some bangers, uh, you know the uh, the El Samurai match, and uh, what was the other match he had that was really uh, high up there? Um, the Doctor Wagner Junior match. Yeah, the Wagner Junior match. So yeah, he was a guy that I instantly like gravitated to as we started doing these reviews. Plus, you know, I've had a lot of praise for the Kakihara match with him as well, which might be my favorite of the Inokiism era matches. Yeah. Um, you know, one other name that stands out to me as someone who really over-delivered as opposed to my expectations was Norio Honaga. Mm, yeah. We, we only saw him once, but I loved that match. <laughs> and the fact, you know, the previous year he had like, what, two or zero points or whatever it was. He was the bottom of the block. And then the next year he's coming back in the, in the finals. It's like, so right. yeah. <laughs> um, as far as do, I think the flat out wrong person won. Um, you know, I think that's a harder question to answer because I wasn't really looking at it so much from like a booking perspective when we did this review personally, mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of just looking at it more from a historical perspective. So for me, it wasn't like, you know, like being invested so much in the long-term story as much as like taking a screenshot of what occurred once, you know what I mean? Right. But were there any times that you thought the wrong guy went over? Yeah. For me, the one that kind of stands out is the Liger versus Minoru Tanaka match. And again, I don't know 
contract statuses, you know, what the deal was with Tanaka. But just based off what we're, we were reading, you know, they're trying to build up a new young junior star. Here's Minoru Tanaka guy. He's awesome. He's in the finals with Liger. Liger's well-established, been in the finals multiple times, top junior champion, top junior star. Like, to me, it would have made a lot of sense for Minoru to beat Liger there and to elevate him as uh, top junior. I... And playing devil's advocate for you, I understand your stance on that. But at the same time, this was the send off for Liger as being like top junior star. Yeah. After he came back from brain surgery, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he never won another uh, junior title um, after this, and he never was in the finals ever again. And, you know, he just retired in 2020, so we're talking 19 years ago, and this was the one time that they did a really big, like, he won every, he swept the whole tournament, and it, the story was, like, you know, the young star could, like, or pull it out one last time, and they did the nostalgia thing with him, which they never do, you right, know what I mean? Right, It's the one time they did it. New Japan never does this, so, like, there's the sentimental part of me, it's like, no, no, Liger needed to win. <laughs> Minoru Tanaka. <laughs> um. Um, I kind of thought Minoru Tanaka should have beat Koji Kanemoto in 2002, but then once I realized that Minoru Tanaka was the IWGP champion, it kind of changed my perspective, and I was like, oh, I guess I see why they did that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't really say there was ever – too many years where I thought the wrong guy went over. Yeah. Personally. The, yeah. For the most part, I mean, all the stories were told very well and um, laid all the matches were all laid out well. And there, I think for the majority of them, the right guy won. I, there was a part of me that thought Otani should have beat wild Pegasus in 95, mm. but I can't, I can still, it was booked so well. I could still see why they did that. Um, there's part of me that thought Delphin should have beat Liger in '94, um, but I, I none of these would I say I was flat out. You know what I mean? Right. At all. Um, maybe Otani should have beat Takaiwa in 2000, but they were pushing Takaiwa for a heavyweight run. So yeah, I don't know. They, they generally speaking, I think they usually pushed the right guy for most of these. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I guess the fact that we don't have too many definitive answers means that they did a good job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next question here from Reddit user Highest Fly Flow. Can you guys talk about Hashimoto's desire to start his promotion that New Japan was supposed to facilitate? Uh yeah. So I wish I would have prepared for this question. So. I could have some historical inaccuracies here, so don't completely quote me on it. I think you guys should probably do your own research. But the way I remember it happening was basically like this. Um, the whole zero one thing wasn't even really supposed to be real. Like it was supposed to be a work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I might have the timeline wrong here, but you know, he was they were doing the whole feud with uh, Hashimoto and Ogawa. And then the famous incident in 1999 happened where Ogawa shot on Hashimoto in the Tokyo Dome. And um, 
still to this day, no one knows really what happened there. But ultimately, um, they booked this this story where it was like Hashimoto's going to come back. He took some time off. He came back, and it's going to be his last chance. And if he doesn't win, then he he has to retire. You know, and so. <laughs> Hashimoto, like the face of the company, one of the big drawing stars they ever had, would find his redemption against Ogawa in 2000. <laughs> Clean. Um, so he had to leave. And the idea was that they were going to start their own uh, company called Zero One, and it was actually secretly going to be like a New Japan affiliate. And it wasn't going to be a real company. It was just going to kind of be like an offshoot, almost like, say, NXT is really WWE. Right. Zero One was supposed to just be New Japan. Like, it wasn't supposed to be its own company. They were just going to create the illusion that Hashimoto was gone while he was still under contract. And then, for whatever reason, the contracts didn't work out. And Hashimoto, and I don't know all the legalities, but I think Hashimoto ended up, like, buying the trademark for zero one before they realized it and then just starting the company. And because new Japan had already put out all the press and everything like that and, and built it up, then there was buzz about it. And then they worked themselves into a shoot. That's the deal. Like zero one was supposed to be a work and it turned into a shoot. <laughs> and also, also Hashimoto wasn't supposed to really be gone. Like it was a stipulation. Like he has to leave new Japan forever. Quote unquote, he's yeah. never coming back. Well, he never came back. <laughs> he left, and that also turned into a shoot. So that they, and that's one of those big classic, terrible business decisions that occurred done under the height of Inokiism in two thousand one ish, and you know uh, a lot of people criticized them for for the way that that all played out, and it 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 is their fault. It's Inoki's fault. He, that was stupid of them. They lost a huge money draw and created their own competition. Sort of like what ring of honor did with AEW. Yeah. Hashimoto, Hashimoto <laughs> finesse some boys. <laughs> uh, pretty much. Yeah. He pulled a, he pulled a Brian Pillman yeah. on uh, Eric Bischoff. Yeah. He, he won finesse of the year that year. And, and there could be some more details to the story. I'm not as familiar with it, but that's the way I remember hearing about it. Gotcha. Uh, so this next question says, Jeremy, what's your favorite white claw? I need recommendations. <laughs> My current favorite is black cherry. Thanks for doing the show, guys. Stay safe. Uh, well, highest fly flow. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I drink way more white claws than Jeremy does. I don't know, man. During the quarantine era, I've been drinking a lot of white claws. <laughs> Jeremy is secretly like, like a closeted white claw drinker. Like he's just getting drunk every day at home off white claws. No, he's Joey Janela status right now. We don't even know about it. The, the Janela zone, baby. Uh, <laughs> but uh, highest by flow. My current uh, favorite flavor is black cherry. Also, uh, but um, I do I like the mango. Uh, mangoes are uh, you no know, top favorite uh, flavor for me as well. Uh, have you had Have you had the new volume? Uh, volume number two, the new flavor pack. I have not. I have not tried the new gimmicks yet. Bro, you gotta try the new gimmicks. They've been out for since the quarantine started. Dude, the stores uh, they've I've been getting what I could, man. White claws. Bro. People been cleaning that that area out, man. Bro, oh, up here, up here where I'm at, I find I have no trouble finding that. I, I find it with ease. I'll bring you one. All right. I'll, um, yeah. 
But uh, I got to tell you guys, hands down, the best flavor is ruby grapefruit. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I'm not really a big fan of the ruby grapefruit. God, ruby grapefruit grapefruit is great. Uh, the new flavors are really good, though. Uh, they're they're very citrus, so if you like lime, you'd like the new pack. It's got tangerine and lemon. Uh, it's really good. Nice. So plus the mango. Plus the mango still in there. There's one other one. Is there, I can't is there like a pineapple? Is. I think. No. So pineapple is not in that pack. Pineapple is newer, and that's part of the seventy calorie version mm. that they have, which is a, a a newer gimmick that they have. <laughs> oh, wow. White claw just. Put it out there, man. Oh, it's watermelon. Watermelon's uh, really good. All yeah. right. Now that that sounds up my alley. Bro, all all four of those flavors are really good. So yeah. I like the I think I like the tangerine the best, believe it or not, out of the new flavors. Alright, I'm gonna have to look out for that that gimmick the next time I go to a store. Yeah. So uh, next question from uh, Viking Payne. He says, have you guys by any chance listened to Tamatonga's new podcast? His stories about his beginnings, struggles, and his dojo experiences, and it being possibly haunted, are pretty interesting. Also on his first episode with Carl Anderson, it sounds like the Good Brothers are coming back to New Japan. Um, I haven't listened to it. So I maybe I'll add it to the rotation. I don't know. Yeah, I listened to it today actually. So initially, I saw the Tamatonga started relaunch his podcast because he actually used to have one on the MLW network a while ago. So he relaunched this as his own thing. And originally, when I saw him tweet about it, I thought it was a Patreon only gimmick, and I wasn't gonna pay to listen to Tamatonga's podcast. No offense, Tama. Um, but um, apparently it's it's out there on Apple Podcasts, all the podcasts. So I did listen to episode two today and Tamo talking about his times um, in the dojo and even before that, you know, getting turned down by WWE and um, Haku telling, you know, helping him get to New Japan and giving him advice and, you know, you know, growing up in the dojo and meeting Fale and all that stuff. So, yeah, it was pretty interesting and I'm going to kind of have it in the rotation kind of going forward. And so, yeah, interesting podcast. You know, speaking of podcasts, I, and I plan to also check that out. A uh, couple other interesting things that I want to bring up on the show that I haven't mentioned. So the uh, podcast of honor or strong honor podcast. What, what's ring of honor's new gimmick? Um, strong honor. I think it's strong honor. Yeah. Yeah. Their new podcast is uh, surprising. Well, I guess not surprisingly, but it's really good, actually. Um, I listened to, like, the first three episodes. They had Jay Lethal, Jeff Cobb, and Marty Skrull on there. And it's called ROH Strong Podcast. That's what it's called. Really, really, really good. And, you know, a lot of those guys, especially Jeff Cobb and Marty Skrull, being affiliated with New Japan, uh, they kind of peel back some of the, you know, curtain on that a little bit. And so really good insight just to kind of see, you know, and obviously Ring of Honor is, you know, the American partner to New Japan. So they're making a lot of like effort to change things and, and you know, uh, kind of improve things going on in the future. And they talk very extensively and openly about that sort of stuff on this podcast, which I find refreshing. Uh, so I, I think that one's really good. I also wanted to mention um, – the revolt when they were on talk is Jericho and they talked extensively about new Japan and we didn't mention on the show how they want to work new Japan. 
yeah, the former Revival FTR. Um, yeah, they definitely they want they want to work Ring of Honor. They want to work NWA. They want to work all over the place. You know, they, yeah. they want to wrestle the Briscoes. They want to wrestle God. They mentioned God. They mentioned the Briscoes. They mentioned Finn Juice. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, we want to. You know, we would love to do New Japan. And I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, pretty interesting stuff. But yeah, if you guys haven't checked that stuff out, you know, definitely check it out after you get done with. You know, listen to us. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, Viking fan says, "Lastly, thoughts on Drew Gulak? I think he'd be a perfect fit in New Japan." So, Drew Gulak, his contract recently uh, was up. Um, apparently, the story is he asked for a raise. WWE did not want to give him a raise, so uh, Gulak just walked, and he's a free man now. I actually heard that they rescinded the offer after he asked for the raise. Yeah, so that they gave him an offer, he asked for a bigger offer, and so they they pulled the the original offer, I guess. Yeah, they recent like that's a totally different thing. They like they didn't say take it or leave it. They said, "Oh, you want a raise? How about this? No offer. Get to step in." <laughs> <laughs> like I'm like I'm like, what's wrong with this company, dude? <laughs> and he was on that like 205 like. NXT, like, you know, who knows what he's making, but I'm sure it wasn't like, you know, main roster TV, like, type of deal. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I like Drew Gulak a lot. I think he'd be good here. I just, I don't know, like, what the ceiling is for him in New Japan. I think stylistically he fits, but from a character perspective, I, I'm not so convinced, honestly. Great worker. Um, big fan of Drew Gulak. I love his work. Uh, has some really good matches. I, like you said, I could see him fitting in stylistically in New Japan. Um, you know, he's had some great matches with Saber in the past. Those guys would have a great match together. Uh, but yeah, from a character wise, I'm not sure what what the character kind of looks like in uh, New Japan. Well, think about like Jeff Cobb. Really impressive guy. Great talent. He adds a lot, but he's not like a top star in New Japan. Right. Because we don't really know what Jeff Cobb's, you know, character is. You know, people act – that's the funny thing is people act like there's no characters in New Japan and, like, it's such a character-driven company, right. <laughs> you know? But people act like it's not. They think, like, everyone's – they think everyone's, like, Inoki and just in black, like, <laughs> tights. It, it's not like that, you know? Um, and I, I, I would see Drew Gulak maybe not quite there, but I think that's a good comparison. Like, Gulak would be kind of similar to Jeff Cobb. Like, he would come in, but – and be really great, and people be kind of excited, and he'd probably be good, but he'd be like a peripheral guy because I don't know what he, I don't know what his character would be. I will say this though, he was really entertaining the last you know couple years on WWE, so I think he could bring. He he's not as uncharismatic as people act like he is, right? And honestly, I think. Ring of Honor, I think, would probably be the best landing spot for him, especially with them bringing back the pure title and that pure division. Uh, yeah, and he could he could work Japan if he was working Ring of Honor as well. So that's that's a great idea. I say he should just go back to Evolve and work his way back to NXT, and then maybe someday he can make it back to TV, still making the same amount of money that he was making. <laughs> Doesn't it suck that Evolve is the feeder system to NXT? Yeah. Or or he could go to Progress, and then maybe if he works really, really hard, he can make it to NXT UK. <laughs> this, like, sucks. Yeah. Man. Um, 
Next question here from Reddit user Wizfactor. It's apparent that the taping quality of overseas events are far inferior to those on Japanese shores. Is there any technical or legal hurdles that prevent New Japan from improving their taping quality outside their home country? Um, is he talking about, like, say, for instance, like the access shows they used to do? Or is he talking about, like, when they did, like, this most recent tour? I don't know. I think maybe just talking about in general. I mean, you can look at some tours that did not have great quality. Obviously, like the Super J Cup uh, shows was not great um, filming here. Um, the, oh, the Super J the Super J Cup uh, tour is really bad. The uh, the Fighting Spirit Unleashed tour in the Northeast wasn't the best. Um, the, that was better though. It was better. Um, the Royal Quest. Um, there was a lot of streaming technical issues there. Um, but overall, I think the issue what it comes down to is just money and how much it costs for a certain type of production um, to get them overseas and to have that production streamed live. Obviously, we've we've seen with the bigger U.S. shows they've you know they've put the money down and had a better presentation. Um, no, no, they haven't. You don't think some of the bigger like the Long Beach shows were. I think those none were, of that was new, none of that was New Japan, right? None of that was New Japan, but it was way better than like the Super J Cup type of stuff, right? But you said New Japan put the money down to produce better shows. They didn't access foot the bill for all of that. That was Access's team. That was right. Access's cameras. So that's the thing. I don't think New Japan has ever actually done a truly competent uh, production in the U.S. Um, and in fact, I think when they did some stuff earlier, Ring of Honor was kind of helping them too. Right. And I think now they don't. Uh, I also think that they've had help from, like, say, RevPro when they ran Royal Quest. I'm pretty sure RevPro well, helped I, I th- them with I that. I think it was Fight TV that did the production. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. So I think that that's the biggest thing. Uh, you brought up a good point. I think the main thing is, like, you know, you look at, say, for instance, WWE, when they go overseas and they travel, they're bringing their production crews, they're bringing their cameras, they own all that stuff. I, I think it's just a matter of, like, I don't think New Japan brings that stuff. You right. know, I think that they are outsourcing to someone or somebody every time they do a tour somewhere. And I also think the, the scope of the production is, is reflecting on how they view the importance of the show and the the size of the uh, the venue. So like, which which would make sense because that's how it's been in Japan. You know, when they have a big show, they have big production. When they have a small show, little production. We saw that when Osprey wrestled Amazing Red, we got because it was in a small building, we got really shitty production. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> almost like a fan uh, cam. <laughs> uh, so bad. <laughs> Um, so I just think it's like one of those growing pains. They haven't figured it out, um, you know, in the past. I actually used to complain about the Access TV film crew. I was like, because even though the the quality was great, I was like, they don't know how to shoot this shit. Like, why can't they just let New Japan's team do it? Well, you know, I don't think they – I don't even think New Japan brings a film team ever right. yeah. to, to, to any country. So I think that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's. I don't think it's political. I think it's just costly. Yeah, cost saving. Yeah, definitely. And also planning. Like, uh, they've shown 
you know, uh, times where they're not the most competent with when it comes to planning because it's a difficult thing to do when you're running a, a tour overseas with all the moving parts. It's just really hard. Yeah. Uh, so next question here from at Manutter0102. With this year's New Japan Cup being canceled, could they use the same bracket for next year's tournament? They could, but they probably won't because uh, who knows? I mean, I don't know what the story was. I don't know what the long-term booking is. It'll be a different time. Uh, they, they're they not going to. I would, I would pretty much say no. Yeah, because I mean, at some point, hopefully, you know, by that, you know, sometime, hopefully September or some point toward the end of this year, they're going to come back and stories will shift, rivals will shift, and they're going to need to tell different stories by the time uh, March comes around next year. Here's a worst case scenario, Jeremy. What if they do? Because wrestling doesn't pick up until anniversary show next year, and uh. they start. They literally start with the same, the same card. Oh my god! They, they 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 run it back with the brackets, and they're just like, "Hey, we took a year long break. We back." Yeah. Uh, I, I hope that's not the case. But also, uh, that would mean uh, no Wrestle Kingdom. Oh my gosh! Don't even don't even put that into the atmosphere. Bro, I think that's something that they are probably really scared about because you know that is. A huge. I mean, if there's no Dominion this year, and then hypothetically, even if wrestling comes back, I don't think they're gonna do a Tokyo Dome. Well, it would have to be like twenty five percent occupancy, bro. Think about that twenty five percent occupancy, bro. They literally just in the past couple years got back to where they were running like forty k's. You know, remember the years when they. We're at 25% occupancy. It's like when the company was going out of business. Like, <laughs> what? That's not good. Yeah. They're going to have to run. They have to run four nights of, of <laughs> Wrestle Kingdom <laughs> <laughs> to get the kind of revenue that they got for one night of Wrestle Kingdom. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Man, it's crazy. That's a scary idea. That is scary. Because the two nights that they ran this year, the only thing that's really keeping this company like in a steady position right now, financially. Right. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see what ends up happening in January. Um, yeah, I hadn't even thought about it till just like literally now, and I'm like, oh, no Wrestle Kingdom, and I'm not even talking about from a fan perspective. I'm talking business. Like, what will they do? Right. Yeah. Our twenty, bro. Uh, are 10,000 people going to want to pack into a Tokyo Dome? Do you know how scary that might be with everything that's been happening? I don't know if the right. public's even ready to do that. Right, and I doubt, you know, there's not going to be a huge international um, crowd coming. Yeah, uh, no travel. The, the travel will probably not have been picked up by them, so that, that's a scary proposition. Yeah. Uh, moving on to uh, Murray Bone. He says been finding himself watching more Takayama matches recently. Mainly his match of Chris Hero in Noah and most of his Noah work. What matches from his New Japan his time in New Japan would you recommend? Um I really like the matches with uh Shinsuke Nakamura. Um he's got he actually had some good matches with Chono. Uh they had a cage match together, that's good. Um him and Kensuke Sazaki, I think their G one match in like two thousand four or 05, I can't remember the year. Uh, Takayama has a legit stroke after the match because of how hard they were hitting each other. Uh, that's that's a shoot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, those matches stick out to me as some of the better matches. The Nakamura matches were fantastic. Uh, the, the Kensuke Suzaki matches, uh, him and Yuji Nagata, I believe also had good matches. So off the top of my head, those ones kind of stick out. Yeah. Nice. All right. Last set of questions here from Kyle Martin from the wrestling squared circle. First question says, I don't expect you guys will know this, but here goes nothing. Do you guys think they have a PWI or Japanese equivalent to Meltzer in Tokyo covering covering American wrestling before the internet? It just continues to surprise me when I'm told how popular and legendary some guys were in Japan, like were the Road Warriors, for example, essentially starting from scratch with no reputations and then getting over, or do they have international fame that carried over? Okay. So I don't have a good answer for that. I mean – my understanding is someone like, say, Fumi Saito, who's been covering wrestling for a very long time, knows a lot about the wrestling industry, including you know stuff over here in America. And I would assume with his coverage has covered that stuff. But here's the thing: in um, in Japan, they have wrestling um, magazines, you know. Weekly Pro, uh, Tokyo Sports, Nikon Sports. Uh, there's some other ones uh, that have been that have existed over the years. These magazines cover all of Perezu, but they also cover the major companies in America as well. Um, and in the 80s, when magazines were more popular, I'm sure I don't know this as an authority, but I'm sure that they were covering what was going on in the territories. Uh, I know this for a fact, too, because guys like Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen wouldn't do clean jobs in America, you know, mm-hmm. um, because they and they wouldn't like they wouldn't let themselves look weak in matches either because they didn't want the Japanese press to take photos and then post it in the magazines. So that's how I know. I don't know, like, all the ins and outs, but, like, you have to understand that, like, Japanese wrestling comes from American wrestling. Um, it's heavily influenced stylistically from the NWA. I mean, New Japan and All Japan were both uh, affiliate members of the NWA for years and years and years and recognized the NWA world title as the main world title. Uh, you know, New Japan had a long standing working relationship with uh, WWF and the IWE had a long-term standing relationship with the AWA. So North American wrestling has always been heavily covered and, you know, known about. And so guys that wrestled over there, like the Funks, like Hanson, like Brody, like Vader, like the Steiners, uh, like the Road Warriors, they, they all were well known because they were in the magazines and, you know, on video and things like that. Right. And that's why it was such a big deal when they they did come over and it's like, oh, my God, like these, you know, North American stars are, are coming to our promotion and it's a big deal. Yep. Yep. You know, uh, uh, same thing with Flair, same thing with Harley Race, same thing with Hulk Hogan, all the all that stuff. Uh, this next question, after completing the final countdown, what's your guys favorite overall match or wrestler coming out of the tournament finals? Um, I mean. My favorite, my favorite overall match. I don't think it's the best match, but it, it's close. But my favorite overall match, and we're going to review it here, is Kushida and uh, Kyle O'Reilly. Uh, for me, my favorite overall match is uh, 2019 Shingo and Osprey. Not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, do you have a favorite overall wrestler coming out of, you know, this project? Um, let's see. I mean, I'll say I've always loved, you know, Osprey and Chingo. I've always liked Prince Devitt, Ricochet, Kushida. For me, like I mentioned earlier, Koji Kanemoto was one of these guys that I didn't really know much about that ended up being one of my favorites kind of coming out and a guy I definitely kind of want to do some more research on and watch more of his matches just from what I've seen in this tournament. Yeah, I think that that's been like the big revelation for you is like how good Koji Kanemoto was, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, I pretty much uh, knew how good most of the rest of these guys were. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guys that are just really great. Um, I think Kushida has always been a favorite of mine and, um, I've seen all these matches, but you know, not having seen them for a few years being like kind of removed, they've just reinforced how good of a performer Kushida really, really was, um, for me, as far as guys that, you know, okay. Like I really, really dug Milano collection AT. Mm-hmm. A lot, even though he only made the one appearance. That's someone that um, I kind of like, quote unquote, feel like I discovered in this whole thing that uh, really stands out to me. Um, I-, I feel like it's cheating to say Liger, <laughs> <laughs> but like to go back and rewatch Liger is always just so, like, I mean, he- Liger's the man, yeah. you know? Uh, Minoru Tanaka is another guy that I really enjoyed. Um, Throughout this project, yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, those would be my, my favorites. Uh, so moving on to his next question, he says, "I remember the curiosity about New Japan releasing rare and unseen content a few months back. It just got me wondering now if you guys knew or could guess when New Japan started recording events. I get that there always been a live event business first and foremost, but what? But does the library actually go back to seventy two? Yes, it does." So you can actually find the very first event that they ever did in 1972, uh, and it did air live on television. They've had a TV deal with uh, um, TV Asai. It was actually originally known as Net TV or NTV originally. Um, they've had a deal with them going back to 1972. Um, I don't think the first year a lot of their events were uh, broadcast or aired, but I've I've seen um, a handful of matches from that very first card, including, and now they were clipped, but I've seen the, I've actually watched a, uh, a pretty long version of the clipped match between um, the first main event, which is Carl Gotch against uh, Antonio Inoki. Um, aside from that, I mean, New Japan World has a lot of the uh, footage. I think the earliest footage on World goes back to 1973. Um, they have the fantastic, um, famous tag team match where it's uh, Seiji Sakaguchi and Antonio Inoki against Luthez and Carl Gotch. And um, I think that's kind of like one of the seminal moments because that's the first big main event match that I remember that looks like New Japan. Like the 1972 card, does, it doesn't have the blue mat. It doesn't have the things that you kind of recognize as new japan but like once you see the stuff in 73 they they've kind of found their identity already but yeah i mean they they've had television going back to 72 they've been recording you know all the way back then he says in connection to my previous question are there any historic new japan events or matches that weren't recorded 
Yes. Um, I mean, I don't have a definitive answer on that, but like what comes to mind, uh, some of their, uh, foreign tours that they did, like, I know they toured like France back in the day. They did a tour in Russia. Uh, they did a tour in Brazil that I've seen, I've seen the match between, um, Antonio Noki and Andre the giant from, uh, Brazil. That's actually on new Japan world. It's from Sao Paulo. And it's actually, in my opinion, the, they had a lot of matches against each other, Andre and Inoki. That's the best match they ever had. It's uh, really, 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 really good. Uh, it's one of the best Inoki matches ever. It's it's actually like one of my top two or top three Andre matches. Mm. It's awesome. But um, I don't think the rest of the tour was uh, was taped. And they actually have a very famous shoot fight between Ivan Gomez and... Um, Oh, I forget the other guy's name. He was uh, Judica. So I mean, yeah, there there have been famous things that have happened that haven't been taped. But I don't know like uh, all the specifics. I I just think about like the stuff they did overseas. I know a lot of it didn't make tape. Mm. I know there's a Dynamite Kid and um, Tiger Mask match. It's like the only one that didn't make tape, and it's from like uh, the Middle East. Uh, New Japan did a tour in the Middle East and they wrestled each other and like no one has tape of it. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> yeah. Well, that wraps up all the questions for this week. Thank you guys for submitting your questions and you know we'll still be taking questions as we move on to our kind of theme shows that we'll be doing. So please keep sending your questions in Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, Discord, wherever you can find us, send your questions in. And now it is time for the final, final countdown segment. So a quick recap of week five. We talked about 2010 to 2014. So in 2010, we had Prince Devitt over Kota Ibushi. In 2011, Kota Ibushi over Rizuke Taguchi. 2012, Rizuke Taguchi over Loki. 2013, Prince Devitt over Alex Shelley. And then in 2014, we had Ricochet over Kushida. So that brings us to 2015. We have the 22nd Best of Super Junior Tournament. Uh, was announced on March 4th of 2015, took place between May 22nd and June 7th. Participants were announced on May 7th. The outside entrants included Barbaro Cavanario from CMLL, Bobby Fish from Ring of Honor, uh, Chase Owens from the NWA, Kyle O'Reilly from Ring of Honor, and the debuting David Finley Jr., son of Dave Finley. For the second year in a row, the reigning IWGP Junior Champion, which would be Kenny Omega this time, did not enter the tournament. Instead, the winner of the tournament would challenge for his title at Dominion on July 5th in Osaka, Joe Hall. Alex Shelley was supposed to be in tournament, was forced to pull out of the tournament after his opening match of a foot injury, forcing him to forfeit the rest of his matches. Uh, young boy, tell us the A block and B block participants here. So uh, in the A block, we had uh, Yohei Kamatsu. That's Yo, for those of you who don't know. Uh, Gato, Barbaro, Cavernario. 
Judas and Thunder Liger, Chase Owens, Beretta, also known as Trent Beretta, Ryazuki Taguchi, and Kyle O'Reilly. And in the B block, we had Dave Finley Jr., Alex Shelley, Nick Jackson of the Young Bucks, Tiger Mask 4, Rocky Romero, Mascara Dorada, Bobby Fish, and Kushida. And this year, we're back to the normal format of where the top guys from each block face each other. No, none of the, you know, the A1, B2 stuff. So top of the A block here, Kyle O'Reilly. Top of the B block, Kushida. They meet here in our finals in Yoyogi National Gymnasium for the Best of Super Junior Final in 2015. Uh, young boy, give us some little background on Kyle O'Reilly. So, you know, Kyle O'Reilly, uh, he made his debut in wrestling in 2005. He's a uh, resident of St. Louis, Missouri. He was born in Delta, British Columbia, Canada. And, um, you know, he's known for his time with Ring of Honor, uh, as well as other, like, independent promotions, PWG. Um, but I think the majority of his renown was earned mostly uh, with his tag team with Bobby Fish as Red Dragon, now known as the Undisputed Era. Uh, you know, he is a one-time Ring of Honor World Champion, but he's also a three-time ROH World Tag Team Champion. Um, he also had a lot of success in PWG. He was a world champion there. He also won the 2013 Battle of Los Angeles. So we're kind of in tw- by 2015. We're kind of getting into the era of um, you know the super indies, and so a lot of these guys are kind of making their renowned you know acclaim in places like PWG and Ring of Honor. Kyle, Kyle Riley was amongst them. But, I mean, he kind of wrestled everywhere. Chikara, Dragon Gate USA. He did stuff with Progress, What Culture Pro Wrestling. I know he started the majority of his career in, like, the Canadian indies and then kind of worked his way to, like, the independent scene throughout the 2000s before he, him and uh, Bobby Fish made their jump to Ring of Honor. Or, I'm sorry, to New Japan. Yeah. And um, in his time in Ring of Honor, before he teamed with Bobby Fish, he uh, he teamed with Adam Cole as the Future Shock tag team. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Future Shock shocked the system. Yeah. <laughs> Wonder where they got that from. Yeah. Also, his feud with, uh, once they split up, his feud with um, Adam Cole, I think they're still some of the best matches of both guys' careers. Oh, yeah. Love their feud. So, yeah, and, uh, you know, they... They came to uh, Red Dragon came to New Japan in 2014, and kind of made their presence known like right away. And uh, you know they, I believe at this point they had already won the junior tag team titles, but they would they'd win those titles on several occasions, you know, with their time in the company. So I mean they were kind of getting the big push, and you kind of see that reflected here in the point totals because you've got Kyle O'Reilly at the top of the block, but in the B block. His partner Bobby Fish has ten points, so he's like right outside. You almost got an all Red Dragon final for this tournament. Yeah, I'm sure that's probably one of the things they were teasing, uh, kind of going into this. Yeah. So, uh, uh, go ahead. Well, one other thing. So, I mean, one thing we forget to mention: Kyle O'Reilly. You know, he what he's really known for and famous for is the fact that he's so adept uh, in what people would kind of consider like shoot style wrestling. Like he's a fantastic wrestler all around, but like he really has like a heavy, like Muay Thai influence mixed with like uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And he really incorporates that sort of, uh, you know, shoot style wrestling 
into his uh, you know performances. And I think that's one of the big things that like kind of set him apart from a lot of the other guys in the indie uh, circuit at the time. Yeah, Kyle's a great, great professional wrestler. So, uh, what do you think about this matchup here with him and Kushida? Um, so I've seen this match many, many times before. I think in 2015, I had it listed as, uh, I had a list of like the 10 best matches I saw that year. And this was amongst them, if not near the top five, I still feel that way. Um, when I watched this match, it is so different from every other Super Junior Final before or after. Like, it kind of is its own unique little thing. And um, I love every aspect of this match. I really do. I the, the one word that comes to mind when I think of this match is, like, a masterpiece. I think it is a perfect work of art when it comes to wrestling and telling stories. Um, you know, Kushida, also, being a former MMA fighter, has a large like um, influence from MMA and from, you know, submission grappling and that sort of thing. And then, you know, you, you take a guy like Kushida and I think that Kushida and Kyle Riley are like kind of made for each other. And I, I've seen them wrestle many times, but this is their best match they ever had. And you see that like right from the get go, they're doing like MMA style grappling, but it's not done. Like we've seen, some shoot style stuff during the Inokiism period. And none of it ever was as fluid or as like high level as what these guys are doing. This is much closer to like fighting network rings or like um, some or like high level battle arts, some of that s- sort of stuff. And they incorporate the shoot style wrestling, but they never completely delve into that. They still stay within the realm of, it kind of almost reminds me of like, uh, and angle the way that they would incorporate like amateur wrestling to their stories. Yeah. Very similar to that. Um, and then once it develops into both of them trying to submit each other and they both keep attacking each other's left arm and that becomes like the developing story throughout the match. Um, and you see these guys kind of like not knowing how to beat each other. So they start like, doing more high risk things and taking more chances and trying to inflict damage on each other. And they're just back and forth and there's so many swings of momentum. And while all this is going on, you've got Bobby fish on the outside, just being an incredible dude, uh, vocal <laughs> coach. Bobby fish was freaking cracking me up the whole match. He was so great. Uh, calling out stuff and, and, uh, he turns up, he'd be like, that's illegal. Ref, he was in the legal ro- ref. <laughs> he was in the ropes. He's in the ropes. Come on, ref. It was so great. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, I, I think I think this match is like nearly perfect. Um, I have I have one small criticism at the end, but like I I love this match. Like every single moment of it. You know, they talk about like people doing. They always say like the things you do in wrestling should make sense. Sometimes people have great matches, but not everything they do makes sense. But like in this match. It's like everything does make sense. It's like a really perfect, logical, hard-hitting inter- – I mean this is the kind of wrestling that I like though. It's guys doing real wrestling techniques, fighting super hard, big kicks, big strikes, tons of suplexes. Like that's what I like. And and every now and again they sprinkle in you know, the, high, the high-flying spots and it's so good. 
yeah, I love this match. And for me, Kyle O'Reilly stood out for me. And, like, I've seen a lot of Kyle O'Reilly's singles Ring of Honor work, but he's been in NXT for so long now. As a strict tag team guy, I kind of forgot how great he is as a singles wrestler. So it's just kind of bre- uh, like a breath of fresh air. Just like, it's a great reminder of how great Kyle O'Reilly is. And there's just so much stuff in his match that I love that he did. There's just like this butterfly suplex combo thing he does where like he does like two rolling butterfly lock things into like a face buster. I love that. That was awesome. Um, there was one point where he caught a kick from Kushida and turned it into a regal plex. That transition was amazing. Uh, my favorite moment of the match, and it's still it's it's been the thing that always stuck out to me. And they've actually copied this uh, in several places after this match occurred, and even this duo they've done it in their matches several times. But this is the first time I ever saw it was in this match. Was Kushida goes up to the top rope and tries to hit a moonsault, and then Kyle O'Reilly's like he turns around and he lo- instead of getting hit with the moonsault. He avoids it and he locks in a freaking uh, triangle. triangle choke in midair and almost submits this guy. I love that spot. I love that spot too, especially when they can hit it clean like these guys hit it and it's like so seamless. I uh, never seen it until this match. That was the first time I ever saw it. And so to me, it was revolutionary. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> uh, um, and then Kyle. Was- Kyle says his brain buster, he, he hits a brain buster, and then he transitions right into an armbar after Kachita kicks out of two. There, there was a lot of that, which is another thing I like in wrestling. Like when guys hit a move and then follow – what they were doing a lot in this match, they weren't so much always going for pinfalls, but because they were trying to get submissions, they would do a suplex and then try to roll into an armbar with it, which was like you know, very, very, very like – logical like they're they keep trying to go for the arm there's one point um and and i love this spot kushida has him in a straight arm bar and they're on the top rope and then he jumps out and brings him face down like almost into a uh like a ddt like a like an arm bar ddt is the best way i could kind of describe it yeah the the arm breaker move yeah and um the way that kyle riley takes it is just really nasty yeah, there's so many great spots, so many great suplex and strikes in this match. There's a spot uh, towards the end here where Kushida, he um, hits a brain buster on the apron on Kyle oh. O'Reilly. It was just freaking nuts. And then Bobby Fish is like, that's illegal. <laughs> that's illegal. Uh, so that, that whole spot was awesome. Well, what I love about that, and that all is great, but what I love is the way that they stay down for almost the full 19 count and they get in at the last second mm-hmm. and one thing i've always liked in places outside in wwe when guys are getting in before the 10 count like say john cena specifically comes to mind they'll stay down and then at nine they pop up and they slide all the way into the ring like this burst of energy which is cool sometimes but i like the way that some guys do it in like new japan or like roh they'll be at 19 and then they'll slump into the ring and they'll barely roll in. <laughs> yeah, like they barely, just barely. Like it's questionable whether they actually. It's questionable whether they actually <laughs> were in the ring or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, these guys did that at 19, which was awesome. And um, I, th- they're exchanging forearms on their knees, and Kyle O'Reilly's making this ugly, stupid face. <laughs> <laughs> Only a face he could do. But one thing that was great was like they were throwing strictly elbows almost the entire match. And then finally, like towards the end of it, 
I don't remember exactly what the setup was, but like Kushida hits Kyle Riley with this big punch right in the throat. Mm. And it's so clearly, and it's a knockout punch and it drops Kyle Riley. And it's so clearly like a punch, but the whole thing was like, he couldn't get Kyle Riley gone. Kyle Riley couldn't get him gone, you know? And, uh, he had to resort to punching him. And like, because they didn't use punches the whole match, the one time he punched him, it was so impactful and it meant a lot. Like, which I love that stuff. Yeah, and that would go on to become one of Kashida's uh, signatures that I, that baseball punch that he does. Yes. Um, yeah, it's kind of like what like uh, Juice does something similar. Yeah. And like you mentioned, like these guys are trying everything to beat each other. I mean, um, Kushida, towards the end of the match, he starts doing Alex Shelley moves, uh, a flatliner into the corner, and then the sliced bread, which was uh, Shelley's finisher. Hit a spiral tap, bro. Yeah, dude. Again, it was almost like when Loki did the Phoenix Splash. I've seen Kushida do high-flying stuff, but I don't think I've ever seen Kushida do a spiral tap. So I was just kind of like, what the hell? Um, but yeah, after he hits the spiral tap, uh, he gets near fall, and then um, he ends up uh, getting into the hoverboard lock. And after a battle, um, they do the, por- the part where Kyle Riley almost gets to the ropes, and then Kushida rolls with him. And then finally locks it in, and then he submits, and that's the end of the match. Um, that was the one thing at the end of the match that I think some people could maybe criticize, in my opinion, is in modern times, we're kind of used to like the big, impactful finish. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Especially when you're talking about a long, epic match like this. Or when you get to like the point where someone gets a submission – it's the moment where like it's been teased, it's been teased. Now, boom, it's locked in, and it's and there's an impact to the delivery of it. Here, it was kind of like more like a whimper the way that Kyle went out, but it still worked for me because this was basically a war of attrition. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This came down to like both guys basically being exhausted, and either one of them could have won. It just kind of depended on who got lucky or who capitalized, and in this case. Kushida just happened to be the guy that got the arm bar since they both were doing dueling arm arm work the entire match. Um, and Kyle giving up was almost like an act of exhaustion. Like he couldn't muster the strength to actually get out of the move at that point. But I could see how some people might see that finish and think, uh, didn't sit completely with me the way that some of these other finishes does. Yeah, that's kind of a little bit of the boat I was in. Like, I was kind of hoping for a little bit more of an impact finish or a little bit more of a kind of a sudden finish. But overall, still an amazing match. I went 4.75. I think you're 5 on it, right? I'm 5 on this match. Yeah. I think it's I think it's perfect. Um, the finish doesn't hurt it at all for me because I, I get the story of what they were doing here. And I, after 30 minutes at the pace these guys wrestled and, and everything they did, it's – this is a – a classic. Yeah, definitely. If you ha- haven't watched this one yet, go out of your way to watch it. Um, so Kushida would kind of he would go on to defeat uh, Kenny Omega for the title at Dominion. Um, then we have some observer notes here, so I think we should go back and forth here since we have a little bit a little chunks here. Sure. All right. So I'll start with this one. So Dave says, the tournament didn't seem to have the interest levels of those in recent years with Kota Ibushi moving up to heavyweight, Ricochet not back after winning last year, and Prince Devitt having left for WWE. Most of the matches were good. New Japan really needs to get 
a really spectacular American to spice things up, particularly with the questions about the future of Alex Shelley. It's a year away, but somebody like ACH, Roderick Strong, or a Matt Seidel may fit in, or perhaps work out a deal with one of the top guys from Noah or Dragon Gate. Uh, the booking was very different. Instead of the usual Gato parody booking, which is fine, but not all the time, he went to uh, to use the tournament to push certain guys, in particular O'Reilly, Bobby Fish, and Mascara Dorada, and, uh, who, by the way, if you guys don't know, that is uh, Grand Metalik in the WWE. In addition... The B block was messed up by the Alex Shelley injury in the opening night, forcing him to forfeit the rest of the way. Kushida beat O'Reilly 30 minutes and 45 seconds with the hoverboard lock Kimura in a classic match. That would rank with virtually any Super Juniors final in history. Kushida was booked strong the entire tour, and it felt like he took a step up, taking the mantle as New Japan's top native junior heavyweight from Deguchi, who had been positioned with the top spot since Devitt moved out of the division. For O'Reilly, a regular who was mostly working tag team matches, it felt like a breakthrough match for him. Notable about the match is that Kushida apparently got knocked out midway through the match, and O'Reilly had to basically lead him through as he forgot much of the rest of it. Yet, in watching it, it comes across like a flawless classic. There is still mental, there's still the mentality about not stopping matches for possible concussions in most of the world, where the concussions in sports stories haven't been covered as much. I've never heard that. That you know what's funny? I did notice that I was watching this with my girlfriend. And I noticed I was like, "Did did they just switch to Kyle calling the match?" And I didn't know why they did that. But I've never I've never noticed anything about Kushida getting knocked out or getting concussed in this match. Yeah, he doesn't seem like it at all. Huh? That's maybe 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 Dave's getting worked. Uh, it is funny how. <laughs> how Dave is mentioning how like there's not as much interest. I'm wondering like if that's just his opinion because he's such a mark or was such a mark for those guys, or if that's like the general consensus. Cause like, I mean, I look at the tournament list and I'm like, yeah, it looks pretty stacked. But then again, I could see what he's talking about. Like most of their top talent that they'd been building in the division kind of left around that time. Yeah. They're sort of rebuilding. Yeah. And here, once you know our question about you know the form about you know, outside promotion guys, Kyle O'Reilly, a Ring of Honor guy, here being pushed to the finals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's uh, go to Best of Super Juniors Finals 2016. Yes. Yeah, so this is the 23rd Best of Super Juniors tournament that took place between May 21st and June 7th. The participants were announced on May 3rd. Outside entries this year included Voldor Jr. from CMLL. Bobby Fish, Kyle O'Reilly, Matt Seidel, and Beretta from Ring of Honor, Chase Owens from the NWA, Will Ospreay from Rev Pro, and Ricochet from Dragon Gate and Pro Wrestling Gorilla. Matt Jackson and Nick Jackson were originally announced for the tournament, but both were forced to pull out with injuries before the opening day. On May 19th, Matt was replaced with David Finley Jr., and Nick was replaced with Chase Owens. The tournament became known for a controversial match between Ospreay and Ricochet on May 27th, which received widespread attention in professional wrestling with some like William Regal praising it to you and others like Vader comparing the match to a gymnastics routine. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember I was living in New Jersey when that match occurred and I was uh, getting my driver's license and literally like uh, Rich called me. <laughs> <laughs> it was early in the morning too. It was like seven, eight, I don't know, super early. And Rich called me. I don't know why, why he was home, but he called me. You're like FaceTime me. He's like, bro, 
bro. And he like showed me the screen and I see like Osprey and like Ricochet like flipping and he's like, oh my God. <laughs> and uh, I was like, bro, I'm at the DMV. Like I can't watch this. <laughs> the origins of RLPW. Oh man. But, um, so let's go through the tournament participants here. So we've in the a block, we have ghetto Dave Finley, Jr. Kushida, Rocky Romero, Kyle O'Reilly, Bushi, Matt Seidel, and Ryuzuki Taguchi. And in the B block, we had Trent Beretta, Chase Owens, Tiger Mask 4, Jushin Thunder Liger, Volador Jr., Ricochet, Bobby Fish, and Will Ospreay. So we have Taguchi, top of the A block, Will Ospreay on top of the B block. That's our final here from the Sendai Sun Plaza, Will Ospreay versus Risuke Taguchi. Very interesting. Um... Will Ospreay ends up with eight points in the B block, but so did Bobby Fish, so did Ricochet, and so did Volador Jr. So, you know, they hadn't really booked Will Ospreay to be, like, the top guy of that block. This is kind of that parody booking that Dave kind of mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Taguchi on the other end, he ended up with the tie between him and Matt Seidel and won the tiebreaker for 10 points. But then you've got... Bushi, O'Reilly, Rocky, and Kushida all with eight points. So they're like literally all just one match behind him. So this was an extremely parody based uh, Super Juniors tournament. Yeah. So uh, give us a little background on Will Ospreay coming into this tournament. Yes. Yeah, so uh, this would be the first uh, appearance of Will Ospreay um, here in the Super Juniors tournament. So, you know, born May 7th. Uh, happy belated birthday, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 1993, uh, Will Ospreay is known for his work internationally with, uh, you know, Ring of Honor, PWG, Rev Pro. Um, he started wrestling in, uh, 2012 is when he made his debut and, you know, he started his like early career, um, you know, he kind of cites the match between, Styles Daniels and Samoa Joe as being like the the match that made him want to become a wrestler, so that kind of influenced him. And he trained at Lucha Britannia's London School of Lucha Libre in uh, Bethnal Green, London. London. So, you know, he kind of made his start like training in lucha, but in England. And um, he started out as a mass character uh, called Dark Britannico. Uh, he was the evil twin of Leon Britannico. But uh, he made his way through, like, the Indies, uh, through the early part of his time in England and the UK. And then uh, he made his debut for Progress in 2012. And he worked, you know, Progress and then eventually made his way uh, into the the rest of the independent circuit. Uh, Had a a really famous, well-known tag team um, called the Swords of Essex. him and uh, Paul Robinson, and they kind of like were one of the top tag teams at the time. Um, and then eventually made his way into Rep Pro. So, like 2012, he gets to Progress. 2013, he gets to Rep Pro. Those at the time were like two of the biggest, uh, and still are two of the biggest um, UK independent, uh, you know, wrestling companies. And keep in mind, this is happening during the boom in the independent uh, UK scene. So, Will Ospreay is kind of like one of those building blocks, you know, along with guys like Pete Dunne, Marty Skrull, Zack Sabre Jr. Uh, the list goes on and on, but they were kind of those guys that were there at the early part. So by the time this match comes around, 
Um, you know, he's kind of already made his name in England, but not so much in, in Japan. And he got his uh, introduction to Japan via a match that he had in Red Pro with uh, Kazushika Okada, where uh, he was impressive enough to Okada and the representatives at New Japan that they decided to bring him into New Japan in, uh, I believe he's, yeah, in uh, March of 2016. So, um, He's literally like fresh off of his debut by the time this tournament starts. Nice. So, um, what do you think about this matchup here? Um, you know, it's funny. Um, I think that this is somewhat of a divisive match, to be honest with you, because if you go look on Cage Match, it's ranked really high. It's like a nine point five. Mm. Um, yeah, which that would be like. Or even I can look, but it's ranked really high there. Uh, at the same time, in the same token, I think Dave Meltzer gave it like four and a quarter when it occurred. But I remember a lot of talk being that this match really, really, really over-delivered at the time and was kind of like a, a, a match of the year candidate. And I kind of don't know if I'd seen this match at the time. I remember watching Will Ospreay's work in 2016, I specifically remember his first match with uh, Kushida at Invasion Attack in 2016, and I remember loving that match. Um, but this match kind of was what I would I'd call a really good match, but not a great match. Um, it went 22 minutes, which is fine. It's weird because in some other years, 22 minutes would have been a, a pretty long or decent timed like super junior finals but because of like how we're used to the epic junior style main event especially over the past couple years that we've reviewed uh between last week and and you know starting with this week this one kind of felt like it went short like it started getting really good and then it kind of deflated for me just a little bit um and also i don't know if this is fair to say but i feel like Taguchi's the better performer in this match than Osprey is at this point in their careers. Um, that's just my opinion. I think Osprey is more dynamic and can do more impressive things in the ring, but Taguchi's the one who knows how to work the big match style in Japan at this point, and it kind of I notice it a lot when I'm watching this match that he's better at timing, better at ringing reading the crowd better at getting crowd reactions. Um, he, he, in some aspects of pro wrestling is better than Will Ospreay at that point. Overall though, I think the match is really good. I mean, what, what are your thoughts here? Yeah. And, and one thing we got to know, this, um, was in Taguchi's home crowd, uh, hometown. Uh, oh, so crowd, yeah, it was, at, it was in Sendai Plaza, right? Yeah. So crowd was definitely behind Taguchi here. And to me, like, yes, Taguchi was good, but I think here we really started to see that well, shift. Oh, be- before we move on, though, one thing we got to mention, Osprey was not over when he got to Japan. Oh, no, yeah. Like, Osprey, it, like, the only place I remember him really being over was, like, Corkin. But, like, it took him a while to get over. When he first got to Japan, they did not fucking know who Will Osprey was. You know what I mean? Like, he was right. working Rev Pro. And progress no one knew this guy <laughs> like so that's a that's another big thing like and also it might have been Taguchi's hometown but I bet you almost anywhere in Japan Taguchi was gonna get uh 
not by the end of the match, but by, in the beginning, he was going to get cheered because he'd been presented as like before Kushida as the top domestic Japanese junior. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say here is I feel like this match, we were really starting to see that, that shift of the more serious Gucci. We're seeing the more kind of goofy antics to Gucci here in this match. We're seeing a lot of hip attacks, uh, the Bomaye. We're seeing him rub his crotch in Osprey's face. Um, it's a lot of like the, the, the modern day Taguchi stuff that you would see now. We're seeing a lot in this match. We didn't see, you know, we kind of turned it up more towards the end of the match, but throughout the match, there was a lot of him kind of, you know, joking around, kind of doing the gimmick um, in between working over Osprey's leg. That's true, and you know that ended up being the. Uh the main story of the match was the attack on Osprey's leg. But I felt like you're absolutely right. Like we saw a goofier side of Taguchi, but also more effort, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, he was doing like hip attacks, but he was doing more athletic hip attacks. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> like, if that makes sense, like, like, like they weren't as lazy as what we get from him in 2020, uh, you know, or, you know, even back then he was doing lazy stuff like during the road to shows, but this one, uh, I felt like he was a little bit more motivated. I think that's what people kind of mean when they met mention a uh, big match to Gucci, but, um, yeah. So tell, talk about the, let's talk about the, uh, the leg injury that Will Ospreay suffers and how that plays out in the story. Yeah, so um, Taguchi catches a kick from Osprey, and then uh, Osprey flips out of it, but then he lands. Actually, I think it was the knee injured before that. No, he know. landed. Yeah, he landed. So yeah, he landed on the he knee. He tweaks it when he lands. Yeah, yeah. so that it was there. Yeah, he lands on his knee, tweaks it, and then from there, Taguchi just picks apart the knee. He drop kicks a bad knee, attempts to ankle lock, and from there. The whole match, he's attempting to get the oh my grandkle lock and focusing a lot of the attack on uh, Osprey's knee. Yeah, um, and I think that that's something that um, they told the story well in the match, but that's also something that might be somewhat detrimental to the overall enjoyment of the match because it's like, okay, you've got Will, and, and Will's good in a lot of ways, but one of the things Will's not great at at this point in time is selling. Um, you know, I think it would, and that was one of those early, um, things that people used to criticize him about, you know, uh, inconsistently selling things, overacting crazy yeah. facials yes. here. He's doing that awful screaming crap. He used to do where he's like <laughs> screaming, like bloody murder. I'm just like, Oh my gosh, shut up. I that's what I used to hate about Osprey so much. And it's like okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna do a, a big Will Osprey match, and you know he's still somewhat green, you know he's a aerial, he's the aerial assassin. The one thing that you shouldn't do is cut his legs out from underneath him and work a body part match for the rest of the match because you know that's going to result in something that is less entertaining at that point in his career. Nowadays, I would say have at it, go for it all day. You know what I mean? Right. But, um, at that point in time, I don't know that that was the best story to tell. I think they pulled it off, but it didn't make for a classic. Yeah. And we did see Osprey kind of doing, you know, the, the one legged springboard, um, pip, pip, cherry, yo, uh, he had like a one legged, um, Moonsault, like standing moonsault. He was doing a lot of like one-legged moves with his aerial offense. 
Well, part of it was, um, and I don't know if this plays into it, but I remember uh, at the time there was a lot of criticism for Will Ospreay because everyone was like, he doesn't sell at all. And to be honest with you, <laughs> in 2015, that kind of was true. <laughs> <laughs> Like he would sell the move, but then he wouldn't sell it at all during the rest of the match. And so that was something he kind of became known for. Yeah. So he, he kind of was like, I'm going to, I'm going to break this, uh, you know, the reputation I have. So I remember he had a match with Kushida when he first broke in, in 2016, uh, early at invasion attack. And they, you know, obviously it's Kushida. So Kushida is going to work the arm. And so will ended up doing a bunch of moves with just one arm. And he was doing all these crazy like handsprings, but with the one arm. And everyone was like, "It's amazing, he can sell," <laughs> <laughs> you know. And and he's such and he's brilliant. He's changing. New Japan is changing him. So I think maybe he was trying to do that a little bit of that because he did. I I remember like Will took it to heart that people were saying he couldn't sell. So he was like, "I'm going to do stories where." I sell body parts long term, but it, I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with that being said, I still thought these guys had a really, really good match. I thought they had a lot kind of going against them. I mean, you know, Taguchi um, in, at, at this point, you know, was kind of being perceived as like the elder statesman. And, you know, Will Ospreay is kind of like the new guy. Um I don't think they had worked together very much prior to this. Totally different styles. Um, and they still managed to have a really great match. Yeah, I, I went with the same rating that Dave did. I went four and a quarter on this match. Um, yeah, really good. Um, just didn't hit that, you know, that higher level, that four and a half, four, seven, five, five star type of level. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm four and a quarter on this match. Um, how did how did this match end? Take us to the end of it. So uh, towards the end here, um, Taguchi's you know, continuing to apply the ankle lock. Osprey fights out, uh, but then Taguchi locks it in, uh, traps the legs around the ankle lock. Osprey rolls out of it. He hits a Spanish fly for a near fall. He goes to the top. Uh, Taguchi slaps him. Goes up there on top of him. Osprey slides out, hits the cheeky Nando's. Uh, Taguchi falls down. Osprey goes back on top and hits the 054, that inverted 450 for a near fall, and then immediately hits the Oz Cutter. One, two, three. Will Osprey wins Best of Super Juniors. Was it jarring to you for you to watch a match where the Oz Cutter beat people? Um, not 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 <laughs> no, that I'm, much. I'm just playing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he he just recently started doing Stormbreaker, so I was pretty used to the Oscutter still. I was like the Oscutter. He beat people. Uh, <laughs> also, his gear. Um, boy, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, Osprey had some cool gear around this time, but like I don't know why, but for this tour, he was wearing that navy blue gear and it was it was not good <laughs> <laughs> yeah and just how much smaller he was too oh he was so much yeah he was yeah bro he's putting on so much weight right now i don't i'm not convinced it's going to be good for him long term i think uh where he was last year was weight perfect. wise was like was perfect and yeah. i think he's going to overdo it honestly yeah unless unless he doesn't want to be the aerial assassin anymore yeah i guess we'll see 
he, maybe he just wants to be the assassin. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So with this win, Will Ospreay becomes the first English winner of the tournament. Also became the youngest Best of Super Junior winner in history. He would go on to unsuccessfully challenge Kushida for the title on June nineteenth at Dominion and on top of Joe Hall. Um, got some notes here from Uncle Dave. So uh, let's go back and forth here. Yep, Will Ospreay becoming the first British wrestler to win the Best Super Juniors Tournament by defeating Rizuki Taguchi uh, on 6-7 at Sun Plaza Hall in Sendai. Ospreay dedicating the match to the late Chris Travis sent a less than subtle message to the critics in a brilliant but very performance, very very different performance from his much talked about match with Ricochet on 5-27. See, I told you. <laughs> I, I told you that, like, that he was getting like antsy about the critics. I remember that. Uh, the match was far more basic wrestling as Osprey landed on his feet and, in the impact, sold his left knee. Uh, like it went out, Osprey legitimately worked the tournament and did all his high flying on a torn meniscus. Most of the rest of the match was Osprey selling his knee, doing an amazing job, including clearly favoring it while doing his flying moves, including springboard moves, using only the right leg. It was even noted in commentary that Osprey had stayed off social media completely under the criticism of the Ricochet match. That match had the weird divisive reaction given that the vast majority of people thought it was among the best matches of the year, and it got positive mainstream recognition internationally, far beyond what even the best Japanese matches get. This match was excellent. I gave it four and a quarter. The key is he worked a match that showed his versatility in doing a match that would be described as outstanding from a storytelling perspective while keeping in enough of the athletic elements to where it would fit into the parameters of what a best of Super Juniors final would be. Taguchi, who is often criticized for relying on comedy spots, mixed in enough comedy that his usual, usual personality was shown, but worked a uh, mostly serious match in trying to become a two-time tournament winner. The match had super heat from the start. It was a hot advanced sellout crowd of 2,167 to begin with. Part of it was because it was a final of the best Super Junior tournament in years. A lot of it also was because Taguchi is from the Sendai area and got the hometown superstar reaction. Everything basic got a reaction, peaking when Taguchi went back a few times to the ankle lock. So, yeah. And um, I thought this match was... Excellent, uh, similar to what Dave said, and I think it does show you like how special a talent like uh, Osprey is. Because even at this point, when I, we're kind of criticizing him, he's still managing to have these fantastic matches. But you know, as much as Dave was like praising his selling and everything, I just can't help but compare it to what he would become like modern day and just see the differences. Because Osprey doesn't wrestle like that anymore. Right, yeah, his selling is so much more, so much better than it was here. Um, you know, he, he cut out the whole bloody murder screaming thing, and yeah, he's like we mentioned earlier, I say more well-rounded performer. Yeah. All right, so that's going to take us to 2017, 24th Best of Super Junior tournament that took place between May 17th and June 3rd. Participants were revealed on May. 3rd. Third, in addition to NJPW regulars, the tournament also featured uh, wrestlers from CMLL, Dragon Lee and Boulder Jr., Marty Scroll from Ring of Honor, and independent wrestler ACH. Veteran wrestler and Thunder Liger took part in the 17th Best of Super Junior tournament in a row and stated that 2017 would be his last tournament. 
Yes. So in this tournament, in the A block, we had Jushin Thunder Liger getting only two points. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. I, I think he beat Taichi, if I remember correctly. Um, or no, no, no. Maybe it was Kenamaru. One of those two. I can't remember. Uh, Takamichinoku, Marty Skrull. Oh, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Yeah, it was in the A block. Yeah, he beat Taichi. So we had Liger, Michinoku, Marty Skrull, Taichi, Hiromu Takahashi, Ricochet, Dragon Lee, and Will Ospreay. And then in the B block, we had El Desperado, ACH, Tiger Mask, Volador Jr., Yoshinabu Kanemaru, Ryuzuki Taguchi, Bushi, and Kushida. Uh, And with that, that is like as modern as a tournament can get, you know, we're three years apart. And I mean, this is basically their like junior division today, almost. Yep. And once again, um, definitely some parody booking here. A lot of the guys, very similar point totals with, you know, Taka and Liger kind of being at the bottom of the block there in the A block. But for the most part, B blocks pretty even and the top of the A blocks pretty even. Yep. So, um, we end up with the final here. Will Osprey and Kushida, A block, B block. Yep, in the Yoyogi National Gymnasium in Tokyo, Japan. So we, we talked about Kushida and Osprey, their background. So let's talk about this matchup here. I hope that, you know, I hope they go back to Yoyogi because the reason they didn't do Yoyogi in the year after this is because they were renovating for the 2020 Summer Olympics. Mm-hmm. And then last year, the reason they didn't go back was because they ran uh, Sumo Hall, which was somewhat successful. But based on what I heard, I remember they were saying they weren't planning to go back there this year. So I'm wondering if they had planned to do Yoyogi or not. I don't know if that was confirmed or anything. But, like, I love this venue. Um, I I like it a lot for the Super Junior Finals, and I kind of hope it's the place they go back to. Yeah, it's a cool venue. Um, but yeah, um, Jeremy, I mean, what are your general thoughts on this match? I thought this match was great. We're, we're getting, you know, Osprey a year later. He's, you know, he's improving rapidly. Obviously, he's still not to the present day Osprey yet, but he's so much better. Uh, we have Kushida, who's we've seen already be awesome. And, you know, Kushida working that shoot base submission style, and Osprey obviously working the aerial style. So the story here of, Kushida kind of wanted to ground Osprey, and then Osprey wanted to fly. Yes, uh, that's absolutely true. There also was an interesting thing where, like, Will did a bit of his English grappling that he knows how to do, and that kind of like came out here. Like, he was doing a lot of the like the world of sport escape style, like transitional grappling yeah stuff that like zach is more famous for but that will can do and then at in the same token there was like quite a bit of high flying from kushida as well so there was kind of like this this sort of like anything you can do i can kind of do better a little bit like Mm -hmm. guys trying to show each other that they can like do what the other guy could do but um for me, what stands out, I think that this match is in many... I mean, it went 27, almost 28 minutes. Pretty long match. And this is in some ways like a template of what the major main event, like junior style is today in New Japan. And 
it starts it's like a, a, a match in several parts like the first part is really 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 good uh, but it's you know it's kind of similar to like what some of the criticisms are of matches of guys like Okada or Tanahashi. It's like they're setting the groundwork for what what's uh, to come, and it's some people say inconsequential grappling, like it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, oh, it's pretty good. This match is like not as good as I remember it, but it's like pretty decent. And then once we get to like the second third of the match. Things just get haywire and go to like a whole new level. And from that point, like we're off to the races. Like this match goes from being um, not just really good, but like an all time classic. So much so, by the way, that my girlfriend watched this match and she she actually watched all, all five of these matches and she liked this match best out of every single match that we reviewed. Hmm. She said this is her recommendation for the week. Nice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's an awesome match, and definitely, if you have not watched this one yet, it's definitely worth watching. Go out of your way to watch this, but yeah, like you mentioned, yeah, that middle part of the match, like the second, third, really definitely pick up. I mean, Osprey is hitting Sasuke specials, Spanish flies, is Pip Pip Cheerio, uh, Corkscrew Moonsaults, uh, and then um, Kushida, a big thing here in this tournament, he debuted the, the Back to the Future small package driver. So yeah. along with the hoverboard lock, he's trying to hit this um, Back to the Future throughout the match as well. Yeah, and they they met, uh, you know, um, Don Callis was on commentary, kind of mentioned that he's like, you know, a guy like Kushida can, you know, he can beat you with a submission hold, he can meet, beat you with the big move, he can beat you with the aerial move. So he's kind of like hard to prepare for. He's kind of like a complete wrestler at this point. Um, one thing that I just noticed is like Kushida getting so violent in this match and just really stiff, stiff shots. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the same thing from Will Ospreay. Uh, the one moment where he put um, Kushida in the corner for the ch- uh, Nando's kick and he just kept kicking him so square in the face. Like and those might be the most violent Nando's kicks I ever remember seeing. Like, yeah, those are stiff. They, they were really, really, I was like, how do you not break his nose? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, you know, we got the stuff from uh, Kushida that I love, like just a lot of really awesome submission, uh, you know, teases. There was like a triangle choke, you know, arm bars, like omoplatas, um, tons of suplexes. Um, Osprey hit an Essex Destroyer at one point that was like really freaking awesome. He hit a 619, uh, a reverse Rana on the apron. Like these guys just went into like – they went from having like an average match to just working at like a really, really this match in some ways, the pace of the match kind of reminded me of like Dragon Lee and Will Ospreay from this past year. Mm-hmm, yeah. Like it, it, this was crazy. And uh, yeah. Kushida did some crazy dives to the outside in this match too. Yeah. His, uh, that tope and Hilo off the top, which we've kind of seen in a lot of his big matches he, he did there. Um, yeah. Just some crazy stuff from um, Kushida. But yeah, that that poison oh, the, run. Oh, oh, go ahead. So that poison run on the apron was crazy. Kashida uh, getting back in at nineteen there. Um, they did a really awesome. So Kashida puts him in a triangle, and then Will's almost out, and then Will uh, turns it into a buckle bomb. That moment was awesome. Yeah, it, um, and, and leading to when that, they start doing the leading to that moment was awesome, where uh, Osprey's going for the Oz cutter, and Kashida traps him in the armbar. Which which leads into triangle. 
Oh, off the top rope. Yeah. Yeah, they both they both uh yeah, he goes to he goes to hit the Oz cutter off the top rope. And uh is that like the super Oz cutter? Yeah. Yeah, I think he went for a super Oz cutter and Kushida jumped parallel to him and caught him in an armbar in midair, which was like insane. And then um then it got violent. They like started hitting each other with kawada kicks and then mm-hmm. forearms and and then uh Kushida like hit him with the baseball punch. And um, then Kushida like started doing the the uh, the Brian Danielson stomps like you're gonna get your fucking head kicked in yeah and he did those were nasty I mean he did a bunch of those like, yeah and the crowd that, started booing but that's the stuff I like I was like oh this match is not only is it like high flying and crazy but like there's just a ton of reversals but like it's violent very 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 violent. Yeah, then uh, Kushida once again he's, he's trying to hit the the Back to the Future. Osprey counters out with the the Stun Dog Millionaire that that spin out stunner thing he does. Then he, yeah. hit, he hits the uh, the O five four for a near fall. Um, there's a bicycle kick followed by the Chikinados kicks, and that's where he does the several of them. Then he attempts a Super Os cutter again. Kushida uh, fights out, hits a Super Back to the Future, then a regular Back to the Future to get the win here. Just. Really incredible match. You know, I it's funny because I'm at like four and three, four and three quarters on it, and thinking about it, it's like I could go five. I don't know why I'm not five. I don't really have. It's a gut feeling. I don't really have a reason why I'm not five. But I mean, it's one of the best Super Junior matches of all time. Yeah, or finals at least. Yeah, I'm also uh, four points and five on this match as well. Again, similar. Like there's just something in the gut. Like I have the five star fear. For whatever reason, and yeah, so four seven five. But I, I always loved Kushida and Will Osprey matches in New Japan. Um, they always they, these guys had really fantastic chemistry with each other, and this might be the best match they ever had. Uh, so that's that's really saying something. Yeah. Uh, then we got the uh, the notes here from Uncle Dave. Uh, Dave says, with the worldwide boom in quality lightweight wrestlers, this year's best Super Junior tournament looked to have potential to be the best one ever. Between the ridiculously loaded A block and a solid B block, the tournament largely lived up to that. Not every match was great, but most were good, and almost all the dream matches lived up to and some exceeded expectations. It came down to 24-year-old Will Ospreay to become only the second repeat winner. Tiger Mask won in 04 and 05. And 34-year-old Kushida doing his comeback storyline. Kushida suffered a number of losses, including the loss in 1 minute and 56 seconds to IWGP Junior Champion Hiromu Takahashi on 4-9 at the Core Genesis show. Then after winning the ROH TV title from Marty Scurll, the simple story was that he developed a new finisher, the small package powerbomb called the Back to the Future. Then he had the Cleveland Cavaliers opening between being down 3-1 in the best of seven, so to speak, before pulling out his block win, then beating A block winner Osprey, and what might have been the greatest match in the history of the tournament that dates back to 1988. Yeah, I liked. I like how uh, now Dave likes to mention it goes back to '88, but in all those other years, he's like that '84 tournament. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kushida scored the pin at 27 minutes 59 seconds with the Back to the Future before a sellout crowd of 3,454 fans at the smaller Yoyogi Gym in Tokyo. The match featured great wrestling, tremendous selling, and body part working, and blow-away moves to make it probably one of the top four matches so far in this amazing year. 
adding to the match from an atmosphere standpoint is that watching it at ringside, kneeling around the ring, were Dragon Lee, Tiger Mask, Rikki Taguchi, Ricochet, and Boldor Jr. They kept the heels away, so it had no interference. Jushin Lago was also at ringside during commentary. After Kushida and Osprey hugged after the match, they presented Kushida with a trophy, and Kushida told all the wrestlers at ringside to get in the ring and thank them. He then told Lago to get in the ring. Lago wrestled his final Best of Super Juniors match of his career a few days earlier. He was the most over-wrestler in every city except on the final night, and then he, addressed, he then addressed the different guys in the tournament, led the crowd in a big wave, and they had confetti celebration and trophy presentation that gave the feeling you just saw something noteworthy, which, in fact, you just did. Whether this was the best Super Junior tournament in history is tough to say. In other years, only a few of the matches were taped for television, and many aired edited. In the early and mid-'90s, the talent that was in the tournament were unbelievable, there were a higher percentage of great wrestlers in other years, but there were no years with as many off-the-chart matches, and the final was as good or better than any in history. The, uh, that generation physically uh, pushed the envelope as to what was the standard of the time, but this generation takes it much farther. There's a scary negative about the lengths of some of these men went to, to have these kind of matches. Osprey has had a ridiculous past few weeks with six four-star matches, starting with the match of Jay White on the ROH pay-per-view show. It's an unreal pace, but a worrisome pace as well. The problem is setting a standard so high that expectations are set at a certain level. The thing is, if you take the, risk, the riskiest spots out, you still would have had one of the best matches of the year. Perhaps it wouldn't be as memorable. Yeah, I mean, this match was really, 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 really crazy. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to, I'm glad that we mentioned, like, I wanted to talk about that, uh, but, you know, we could just touch on it. You know, Kushida had been like the ace of the, uh, of the junior division, but then after he kind of ran out of challengers, when Hiromu returned and kind of knocked him off of the pedestal, and then when they had the return match and he beat him in a minute 56, he was kind of like on a losing streak. He was on the downside and they were, you know, he had to have a redemption story arc. And that was kind of like the culmination of this tournament. And, you know, he went three losses, three and one in the first four matches at the tournament. Like, uh, we should say one and three, actually. So he had one win, three losses. Like, he was almost out of the tournament right away. Very similar to, like, the Naito booking um, or the Jay White booking in the uh, in the G1 this past year. And, yeah, it was just a really, really, really good story, really well booked and, you know, both guys kind of had their their own angle. Osprey, you know, sort of trying to take the mantle as the top junior, also trying to be a repeat winner, kind of make history. And then you got Kushida trying to be like, "No, nah, I'm not done." Like, <laughs> yeah, and I love the fact that this whole storyline. He even kind of quote unquote went on an excursion, went to Ring of Honor, uh, did some dates there, won the TV title um, to kind of help you know pick back some confidence and momentum. And he was the TV champion in this tournament. Yeah, and I think. If I remember correctly, I, I don't think you have it here, but I think he did go on to beat Hiromu for the title at uh, Dominion that year. Yeah. Off of this. So. So nice little story here. Yeah. And that would be Kushida's final appearance in the Super Juniors tournament. Uh, no, he was in uh, 2018. Kushida? Yeah. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he was. He was in the B block. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant the finals. Oh, okay. <laughs> My bad. That was his finals. That was his final finals appearance. Gotcha. Okay. 
<laughs> so let's talk about since we're on the note, let's talk about 2018. Yeah, and this would be the first tournament that we reviewed here on the show. Uh, Keeping Strong Shot, we started November of 2017. So this Special Super Juniors was the first one that we reviewed in full, watch every single match. So if you want to kind of go back in the archives and listen to us review all the matches of that tournament, you can do that and kind of get our thoughts on the whole thing. So uh, this is the 25th tournament here that started on May 18th and ended on June 4th. Participants were revealed, revealed on May 7th. In addition to the regular New Japan regulars, we had from CMLL, Dragon Lee, from Ring of Honor, Marty Skrull, Flip Gordon, and Chris Sabin, and then independent wrestler ACH. Yes. Um, and along with that, so in the tournament... Um, the actual blocks of the A block, we had Yoshinabu Kanemaru, Yo, Tiger Mask, Flip Gordon, Bushi, ACH, Will Osprey, Os- Osprey, and Taiji Ishimori. And then in the B block, we had Sho, Ryuzuki Taguchi, El Desperado, Dragon Lee, Chris Sabin, Marty Skrull, Kushida, and Hiromu Takahashi. So it leads us to our finals in Korokin Hall, Hiromu Takahashi versus Taiji Ishimori. Uh, give us some background on Taiji and Hiromu. Perfect. So Taiji Ishimori, um, you know, he is actually a longtime um, veteran of, of, you know, wrestling. Uh, right now he's currently 37 years old. Um he started in 2002, trained by Timon Honda and Ultimo Dragon, and um, he spent the majority of his career, about a 12-year stint in pro wrestling, Noah. That's where he became one of the most decorated juniors in that promotion's history. He held the GHC Junior Heavyweight title three times. He also set the record as the longest uh, reign with that championship at 405 days. He also held the junior uh, heavyweight tag team titles a record six times and won the promotion's global junior heavyweight tag league a record four times. Uh, aside from that, uh, he also he started his career in Toriumon in 2002. He wrestled uh, there for about two years. Um, he actually had a short stint in New Japan Pro Wrestling that people don't really mention or talk about, but he was with the company um making appearances in 04 and 05 uh he was uh in their young lions prospect uh tournament in 04 he also teamed up with tanahashi uh for a one night u30 which was under 30 tag team tournament um in 2004 as well so and he also you know so and he all he also did a uh super junior tournament around that same time period as well he didn't like place in the finals but uh yeah he also had dates in uh all japan in 0506 so you know he, he started toriumon worked new japan worked all japan and then finally made his home in pro wrestling noah and that's where he got all those different uh accolades that we kind of mentioned he, uh his time in um impact from 2017 to 2018 is also very notable he won like the x division title there and everyone you know that's where people in the states kind of uh first got uh familiar with him but um you know there's a point where 
he was with Noah and he told them that he was going to explore his options working in America. And then it was kind of controversial because then very shortly after that, his other options ended up being working New Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Finesse. (laughs) Uh, But he was brought in in 2018 in April um, as a member of the Bullet Club. He was uh, presented as the return of Bone Soldier. And then it was revealed uh, at Wrestling Dantaku on May 4th that he was the new Bone Soldier and uh, he attacked the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion Will Ospreay uh, at that same time, and then became a participant in this tournament. So when he, when Ishimori came into this tournament, he was pretty much a new star with almost no matches in during that run prior to this uh, tournament. Yeah, I remember we got weeks of vignettes. Bullet, uh, Bone Soldier is returning. And led to that, that big moment you mentioned where he got revealed and attacked Osprey. Yep. And then on the flip side of things, we have uh, Hiromu Takahashi, who's currently 30. He made his wrestling debut in 2010. He's also wrestled in Mexico under the name Kamitachi. So uh, he made his debut. He's actually a young lion and dojo boy. Uh, started with New Japan on August 28, 2010. Uh, worked as a young lion uh for over three years. So quite a lengthy run as a young lion. Um, on, in January, 2014, he was renamed Kamatachi and was sent to, uh, CMLL to, to wrestle in Mexico, uh, for his excursion. And, uh, while he was there in 2016, he won his first wrestling title, the CMLL world light lightweight championship. Um, that's also where he had a, very lengthy and famous feud with uh, Dragon Lee of CMLL. And the two of them had a long series of matches that got international acclaim, um, including uh, title matches, uh, hair matches, and mask matches, where he lost both of... And he ended up losing all three of those things, his title, his mask, and his uh, hair to Dragon Lee during the feud in Mexico. Uh, eventually, he end up working in ring of honor until the fall of 2016. And that's when he came back to, uh, new Japan in November of 2016. Um, they started, uh, showing vignettes for the ticking time bomb that he was going to, that the ticking time bomb was coming and people weren't really sure who it was. And it ended up being Hiromu Takahashi. Um, yep. And he made that debut. Let me take a look here. Yeah, in August of 2016 is when the cryptic videos started uh, showing up. And then at Power Struggle on November 5th, 2016, he re- uh, revealed himself as the ticking time bomb, uh, coming back under his real name, and um, came out to challenge Kushida for the IWGP heavyweight title in a match at Wrestle Kingdom in the Tokyo Dome. Um, from that point forward, Hiromu would go on to not only win the title, but also uh, be established as a member of Los Ingobernables de Japón and kind of be like the junior ace of that uh, of that uh, faction and really, really gain a lot of popularity and become a, a major star for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Nice. So was this match as great as you remember it being? Um. I don't know if you remember this, but I've never thought this match was as great as everyone else thought this match was. Uh, now that you say that, I, I'm, I'm remembering back now, yeah. Yeah, and I, I still feel the same way. I don't think this match is as good as everyone thinks it is. But 
I don't want to. I don't want to besmirch it or be that contrarian guy or you know that negative voice. I think this match is fantastic. But uh, what did Dave rate this? Like five and five and a half. Five and a quarter. Five and a half. Five and a half. <laughs> Bro, this match is not five and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, but um, I do remember this one. Our um, junior match of the year that year, uh, which I didn't think it was at the time, but. Um, I, I still think it's a fantastic match. Yes. Yeah. This. Yeah. It was great. It's actually. It's, I think it's the first time I rewatched this match since we watched it in real time and reviewed it in uh, 2018. Yeah, it was an awesome match, and um, you know, a little bit of a different different start here with these guys kind of brawling out into the crowd and all up into the cork and crowd, and Hiromu hitting that um, that John Wu drop kick on the crowd there. And then working their way back into the ring. Yeah, yeah. Both of these guys do some really incredible work here. Um, the brawling to the outside really stands out as that sort of thing did happen quite a bit in junior matches during the tournaments, but you didn't really see a lot of that during the finals, you right. know. And and so for them to kind of go up into the the cork and crowd and just the crazy stuff that Hiromu did, like that John Wu drop kick you mentioned. But not only that, at one point he teased that he was going to powerbomb Ishimori onto the um down the steps, con- down the concrete steps, and Ishimori uh, reverses that into a Frankensteiner of sorts, and um, Hiromu tumbles all the way down every single one of those steel <laughs> steps down to the guardrails at the bottom. Which is a, a pretty crazy spot. Um, yeah, these guys took a lot of risks and a lot of like chances. So it's a dangerous match. Um, one thing that really stands out to me is Ishimori. I, I think he's still as good, but he has not been put in the limelight in recent years the way he was then. So I, I can't say he's not as good now, but man, he was good. Like He was, like he was on his A game in this tournament. In this tournament and in this match, he was on his A game, and he's moving so fast. Like, um, not only that, but like a lot of because he kind of was um, debuting a lot of new um, offense because he previously had worked primarily as a, a babyface, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. And so this was like him working as a heel, trying to like get heat and you know get the crowd to hate him and get the other guy over and. You know, we've always kind of praised him for that, like the fact that he's able to work a dynamic style, but still be despicable and, you know, hold back just enough to kind of like get heat on him, which is kind of a tough balancing act. But he did it really well in this match. Yeah, he did a great job. Uh, yeah, Hiromu hit that that that, uh, that that sunset bomb to the outside, which got us a near count out. They did that one pretty safe because we've seen it in the past where. Hiromu's literally flipped over and like dropped dudes like full force off that. But here um, they did the kind of delay where Ishimori held onto the ropes and then they brought him down, which I think is the safest way to do that. They should, I don't think they should do it the the other way where the, the guy just takes the move, you know? Right. Yeah. This way that, you know, Ishimori had time to kind of prepare himself for the bump. And in the story of that it was like, all right, he's trying, you know, he's trying so hard to hold. He knows it's coming. So he's trying so hard to block it, but he just the momentum and his speed just sends him down. Yeah. Um, 
another thing that really stands out is the submission game of both of these guys was really highlighted. So during this uh, tournament, Hiromu had uh, debuted his new finishing hold, the D, (laughs) (laughs) which is a triangle choke. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I love the commentary. Like Saban's like, he calls it D. Kevin Kelly's like, D? He's like, yes. (laughs) Saban's like, yes, I should know. He put me in it last night. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah. So, <laughs> but then, um, you know, Ishimori actually, even though Hiromu had a lot of uh, moments where he teased, you know, the D or whatever, um, to me, it was Ishimori who really stood out with the uh, sustained attack on the shoulder and the arm of Hiromu. He kept going for the yes lock and different omoplata, fa- you know, cross faces. And um, Hiromu, like, being in a lot of jeopardy many times and just barely, barely, barely getting to the ropes on many of those occasions and the facials of Ishimori when he's applying these holds, they, they really got the crowd believing at certain points that Hiromu might be done, which was pretty awesome. So yeah, I loved that. Yeah. I remember watching this match back then thinking, Oh, it's a lock that Taiji's winning. Like just came in new top heel winning the block. Like, He's going to win this thing, and it's going to be him and Osprey Dominion. Well, yeah, not only that, but he had beaten Will Osprey on the first night of the tournament. Yeah. So he had a claim for the title, and yeah, that, that just seemed to make sense. Like, they hyped him up so much. He beat Will Osprey. Like, you know, that just kind of seemed like the way they were going with things at the time. Uh, but we were completely wrong. Um, towards the end of this match, too, aside from some of the big moves that happened, there were some crazy strike exchanges and crazy lariats. There is one lariat in particular where Hiromu just, like, fucking kills Taiji Ishimori. Yeah. <laughs> Flip that man inside out. Yeah. And, um, uh, so, yeah, this match is awesome. Ishimori's, like, throwing a bunch of knees also. Um, yeah. All, and then, and then, no. the, then there was a crazy spot towards the end where um, Hiromu hits this like modified J driller, Tiger driver, whatever you want to call it thing. I don't know what that move is because the the placement of the arms is not like a butterfly. It's uh, it's not a butterfly because he's not clasping his hands together under the arms like a butterfly lock, like. He reaches all the way down to like where the neck is, so he like butterflies the arms, but then goes down to the neck, and he's holding him by his neck, like it's weird looking. And yeah, and he drops this dude on his dome, dude. Dude, and I forgot about this spot. Like this literally popped me again. I (laughs) I forgot this spot happened. He dropped that man Taiji right in his head. Now, one thing I will say is this: uh, at 34 minutes, this is one of the longest matches we've reviewed, but. It didn't feel like 34 minutes at all. It actually, in some ways, felt shorter than the other couple matches we just reviewed, for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and when I look at the time, it is kind of hard to believe that it's a 34-minute match, because it doesn't feel like it, really. Yeah, I think part of it, I think that the outside brawling helped it feel a little bit shorter, because it almost felt like that beginning part of the match, like the match hadn't really started yet, because they were brawling That's true. in the crowd, and then once they finally got back in the ring, it's like, okay, here we go. So. That that's true, absolutely. Um, you notice 
that we kind of in some years have kind of gotten away with these finals where the competitors that were in the tournament were, you know, not on the outside. But for the most part, to some degree, in most years, there were people on the outside who were involved in the tournament, whether it was all the competitors or maybe a select few. But this is one of the first years where there's no one from the tournament on the outside at all. Yeah. And that would also remain true for the 2019. So I'm wondering if that's something that they're just going to be doing going forward. Like, you know, the, the tournament participants just don't, they're not going to be out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what they do with that. But yeah, Hiromu gets the win here. Corner Death Valley driver and the time bomb for the win. Yeah. And you know, you also have to preface it. Like it's the series of moves. There is like pretty incredible. Like, um. Yeah, he uh, Ishimori goes for a 450. Hiromu gets the knees up. He hits a Hurricane Rana into the D. Then he hits the J Driller. Then he locks in another D. And then when, only after Ishimori gets to the ropes does he do the Death Valley Driver into the corner and then the time bomb. So it's like a it's a lot of like offense back to back to back to back to back. Yeah. It's like, like, that, like that super finisher combo kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. He, he capitalized on a mistake Ishimori made and then put him away with an, a nonstop onslaught of offense. Um, you know, it was interesting because, you know, on the one hand, Ishimori was sort of like a unknown. Um, but at the same time, Anytime someone faces Hiromu Takahashi for the first time, he is an unknown because he's so crazy. You don't know what he's going to do, and he's a, a hard guy to prepare for. And I think that was somewhat kind of the story here. It was like not only was this the first time that both of these guys had made it to the Super Junior Finals, but they'd never really wrestled each other. Mm-hmm. And you know they didn't really know what to expect from one another. So it was like a, a kind of a mystery for everyone involved, which was kind of refreshing. And uh, yeah, the match just, the match is great. And I think too, what was interesting, you know, with this tournament, they spent a lot of time kind of building up the D uh, triangle choke and he got a lot of wins in the tournament with the D, but here he ends up winning with the time bomb. So it's kind of like a fake out. It's like, Oh, you, you think he's going to win with the D, but he ends up, he still wins the time bomb here. Yeah. And he did get some wins in the tournament with the D. I remember, uh, I remember him specifically beating Marty Skrull with it as well. Um, yes, so Carl I mean, he got Saban. some. Yeah, he got some big wins. Um, I don't think that Taiji did. Taiji Shimori ever hit the Bloody Cross? No, I don't think he did. He did not. No. So, so that's another thing was they protected his finish in the midst of all this, uh, you know. And yeah, I, I think this match is great. I still think it's really, really fantastic. I went four and three quarters on it. Um, I don't know what I went the first time. I think I was like four and a half, maybe four and three quarters, something like that. But yeah, it, it it's awesome. Yeah, I went the, the full five here for me. Uh, and so this would become the longest best of Super Junior match in history, breaking the previous record in 2015. And it was the first time since 2011 uh, that did not feature a Gaijin wrestler in the finals. Uh, the final match, like we mentioned earlier, was given five and a half stars by David Melser of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. I just, we could have a debate all day about Observer ratings, but let me just say this. One definitive statement. 
this match is not better than every single five star rated match in the entire history of wrestling. <laughs> it's just not. It, 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 and it's a really great match, but it's just come on. That's ludicrous. This is when I this was the match when I was like this whole star rating overrating stuff. He broke this the, the, the scale's broke. It don't work no more. <laughs> so speaking of Uncle Uncle Dave got some notes here. He says Takahashi Ishimori had what could be argued was the, this year's best match and definitely the greatest final in the long history of Best of Super Juniors tournament on 64 Cork and Hall. This is 2018. Yeah. He said that this could be argued as the year's best match. Okada and Omega happened that year. <laughs> what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> um, anyways, after high-risk moves, twists and turns, Ishimori surviving the triangle that Takahashi had used as his go-to move in the tournament, Takahashi got the pin in 34 minutes and 9 seconds with the time bomb. The finals in recent years have been held at Yoyogi Gym, but that's closed for earthquake renovation prior to the 2020 Olympics. Cork and Hall, which sold out with 1740 paid, was far too small for such an event. Uh, from a drawing power standpoint, the tournament was a success in all but a few nights. All five Cork and Hall events sold out, even though Takahashi or Tanahashi, Okada, and Omega didn't work any events in the tour until the last night. So yeah, very successful tour there. Great main event. Um, Hiromi would go on to face Osprey, to defeat Osprey at Dominion and get the title back. Great. Uh, let's talk about the final match of the final countdown, the 2019 Super Junior Finals. Yes, so the 26th best of Super Juniors here started on May 13th of last year to June 5th, with the finals taking place at Ria Goku. Uh, the participants were revealed on April 23rd. And outsiders from CMLL, we had Dragon Lee, Teton from Ring of Honor, Marty Skrull, Gresham, and Bandito. Uh, this was the first edition to have 20 wrestlers entering the tournament. Before the tournament, El Desperado had to pull out due to injury and was replaced by Doki. Flip Gordon also had to pull out due to visa issues, being replaced by Young Lion Ren Narita. Takamichi Noku forfeited his final three matches due to a leg injury. The 2019 edition included a record 20 participants, with uh, Shingo Takagi winning all of his matches in the A block, therefore becoming the first person to win nine matches within the same block and setting a record for most points scored in the tournament with 18 after the inaugural 1988 edition, which used to use, which used a different uh, point system than the previous record of the current format, which was held by Prince Devitt, who won all eight of his matches in 2013 and scored 16 points. So uh, tell us the A and B block participants here. So in A block, we had Takamichinoku, Tiger Mask, Yoshinobu Kanemaru, Titan, Jonathan Gresham, Marty Skrull, Sho, Dragon Lee, Taiji Ishimori, and Shingo Takagi. And in the B block, we had Ren Narita, Doki, Rocky Romero, Robbie Eagles, Bandito, Yo, Bushi, El Fantasmo, Rizuki Taguchi, and Will Ospreay. Yeah, nice little stack lineup here. So, obviously, we've talked about this match several times in the past here on this show. Uh, Shingo and Will Ospreay here. Shingo winning the A block, Will Ospreay winning the B block. And we get our final of Shingo and Will Ospreay and Rio Goku. Uh, so, give us some background on Shingo. Yes, so Shingo Takagi um, 
His current age is 37 years old. Uh, longtime pro. He made his debut in October of 2004. Trained at the Dragon Gate Dojo as well as by Animal Hamaguchi. Um, basically, Shingo was known for his work primarily with the uh, company Dragon Gate, which is where he competed from the moment he debuted all the way up until 2018. Um, he was known as the promotion's top heel for many years. Uh, He's one of the most decorated uh, wrestlers in the company. He won the Open the Dream Gate Championship, which is their uh, top title. He won that four times. Also, uh, leader of the villainous Berserk stable through many incarnations. Um, had a very long rivalry with uh, BXB Hulk over there. Uh, and they may have vented a ton of Dragon Gate events, made lots of money. And aside from that, Shingo also is kind of known here in the States for a period of time. Um, during his career, he was like from around 2007 to 2008, or I'm sorry, 2006 to 2008. Um, he kind of did like an, a foreign excursion if you, or like talent exchange. Uh, he was working in uh, companies like Ring of Honor Pro Wrestling Gorilla, Full Impact Pro, Dragon Gate USA, uh, WXW. So that was like the one time in his career where he kind of like got a lot of outside exposure and people kind of remember him for that. But the majority of his career was spent primarily running things over in Dragon Gate. So, you know, he was sort of like a, the monster over there because a lot of it's that, that's a high speeds uh, junior promotion. So, you know, as far as size goes, like Shingo was always one of the the biggest guys over there. Um, he did have a short run before he joined New Japan, where he left um, uh, Dragon Gate, and he kind of worked. I know he was in Bola with PWG uh, prior to joining New Japan. He also uh, was in like the WXW 16 Golden Carrot Tournament. He also worked the uh, All Japan Champions Carnival. Uh, just prior to joining New Japan, so like to, in 2017, he he did some of that. But in October in October of 2018, he was revealed at King of Pro Wrestling as the surprise debuting sixth member of Los Ingenables de Japón, and he was declared as being a junior heavyweight, uh, even though he's kind of on the border when it came to size. And uh, from that point forward, leading into this tournament, he went on a lengthy undefeated streak that would lead him into this tournament. Yes, and uh, that brings us to this match here. Um, you know, I've watched this match several times since the first time we reviewed it. Um, it was our Keeping It Strong Style match of the year. It was the junior match of the year. Um, Osprey was wrestler of the year, junior of the year. Um, several publications had this added as its match of the year. Um, one of my favorite matches that we've Watch that I've watched since doing Keeping It Strong Style, and yeah, this thing was as great as it was the very first time I watched it. Yes, so there's a lot of things we can talk about uh, with this match. I think most importantly, the story leading into it and the build. A um, couple things. Well, they're in Ryogoku for the first time in since the '90s. Uh, when Liger was on top. So that's a huge deal um, from a business perspective. Uh, the largest tournament they've ever done. And then the story they told is just really fantastic. This is quite arguably 
maybe the greatest uh, Super Junior tournament of all time when it came to match quality. Um, I think it might slightly be better than 2018. That's how good it is. But you got Shingo in the A block, and he goes undefeated. He beats every single competitor. It's a who's who of the talent in that division. And keep in mind, Shingo had had like literally almost no singles matches at all in his time in New Japan prior to this tournament. So, you know, this was his introduction to the junior division, and he ran roughshod over everybody, including, you know, rivals like Sho, the champion Dragon Lee, Taiji Ishimori, you know, who was a, a finalist the year prior. So, I mean, he just like destroyed guys. And then um, on the other end of things, you've got Will Ospreay, who had spent the majority of the year wrestling in the never openweight division. And this was kind of his return to the junior heavyweights. And he had the, the most match length as far as ring time goes. So he had a lot of t- wear and tear in his body going into this match. And he also put on a lot of weight because he was competing with heavyweights um, prior to this tournament. And he just had an outstanding tournament giving, you know, almost every night, each guy in the tournament, their best match of the tournament. So you kind of had a dream match where you've got two top talents, Shingo and Will. They've never wrestled one another. You're doing it in Sumo Hall. You're doing it with this incredible build. And, you know, you've got Shingo who is undefeated and then Will who's trying to slay the dragon and um, reclaim his spot at the top of the juniors. So, I mean, the build is quite honestly, I think it's the best build of any junior tournament. After reviewing all of them, I think this is the best build. Yeah, and there was also another little uh, Bullet Club fake out like the year previous where, you know, obviously 2018 we had Taiji Shimori debut, attack Osprey, beat Osprey. We think he's getting a big, you know, the big win. And then here we had um, El Fantasmo making his debut before the tournament, beating Osprey in that tag match. He beats Osprey in this tournament, and you think Fantasmo is going to get the big run to the finals, but uh, it w- would not be so. Yeah. Um, you know, I love this match. I, I've got it ranked probably just as high as you do, but I've always said this last year, it was amongst my top three matches of the year, but this wasn't my match of the year personally, even though I recognize that universally it's probably the match of the year for new Japan and for all of wrestling. That being said, there's a lot to dig into with this match. Um, a lot of talking points as far as the action and everything. And every time I ever try to like review it, cause we've watched it a few times. We've talked about it a few times in the show and I've always been like, man, like I don't ever feel like I do a good enough job reviewing it. And then I realized why after watching all these other junior style matches over the years and then comparing it to this one, it's because the work rate in this match is way higher than any other match that we've reviewed. And I was like, it it dawned on me, this is a Dragon Gate match. Mm. That's what this is. Um, It's at a higher level than most Dragon Gate matches uh, in general. Like, it's the pace is so, so freaking fast. Yeah, I had had a hard time uh, keeping up with the notes on this one. I paused several times and went back. Yeah, and I did, and I never picked up on that before until now. Like I, I just remember being blown away watching it at, at how much was happening. But once I've kind of got it, got it in perspective, and I realized the difference between what happened in this match, 
for me, the things that stood out were always like the there's big moments, you know, the big moments like um, Shingo's dive or Shingo hitting the Made in Japan or Will Ospreay, you know, hitting an Ozcutter, the Super Liger bomb, all that sort of stuff. Like those kind of st- stick out. But, but what I've always missed is the little things, which aren't little things at all. It's big move, big move, big move, big move. They are like wrestling at a freaking really, really high fast pace. And they do it for like 33 minutes. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, really, really crazy. And I'm like, Oh, this is like a top style level dragon gate match. That's why this match is like, and here's the thing. I've never really been a big fan of dragon gate. Like I've always liked it, but I always thought it, they worked too fast because I can't keep up with it. I'm like, but this is like the best version of that because these guys are masters at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, you can take us through the stuff that stands out to you, but like, undoubtedly, after rewatching this, this is the best Super Junior Final of all time. Yeah, I mean, so many amazing moves, and also the, the the big story of you know Osprey as the underdog and trying to slay this beast and. They just both had a phenomenal offense here. The chops, the lariats, the kicks, the strikes. Um, there was one spot where Osprey, like Shingo's uh, uh, bent over. Osprey has the 630 on his back when he's bent over. And yeah. Falls up with a top rope shooting star. Uh, got Osprey going for his, his new finisher, the Stormbreaker, several times. And um, Shingo fighting out. He tried to do it off the top rope at one point. Yeah, he did. That was crazy. Yeah. Uh, which makes me think one day he might do it. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> who's crazy enough to take that? Me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the Made in Japan, which I remember the first time because I was on vacation watching this match um, on the cruise, and the first I remember seeing that the first time I thought the Made in Japan was Last of the Dragon. And so I like marked out because Osprey kicks out. I was like, "Oh my god, he kicked out of his finish!" But realizing it was actually made in Japan and not Last yeah. Dragon. Well, Kevin Kelly did the same thing too. Yeah, yeah, he didn't know either. Yeah, Chris Charlton was like, "Actually, that's you know the made in Japan." A- actually, <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> uh, Meltzer explained him. Uh, yeah. And then, they had, <laughs> then the two pumping bombers after that made in Japan. Oh my gosh, he freaking killed will with that um, yeah and then uh will fights out last day dragon of a poison rana which was great and then there's an iconic spot where they're both on their knees and they have the headbutt exchange um <sighs> yeah it, it's a lot like you're going through it and like you're just going through a couple minutes of towards the end and like so much stuff had happened prior to this it's like how do you keep up with all this it's crazy yeah um yeah osprey Hits a kick, hits a Spanish fly, does his super combo here where he does the hook kick, hidden blade, super Oz cutter, and the Stormbreaker to get the win here. Yeah, that super combo is incredible. And, you know, keep in mind, the, the whole thing here is a lot of people thought Shingo was winning. So the fact that, like, they kept Shingo undefeated for that, you know, that whole time period, it was like 90 matches or something, and then beats everyone in the tournament and you think like oh my god this guy's gonna go undefeated he's gonna beat will osprey and he's gonna go on and murk everybody in the juniors and like just run he's gonna run this shit like he did when he was in uh in dragon gate 
and Will Ospreay, little do we know that the whole reason that they're building Shingo up was to give Will the rub mm-hmm. because that's exactly what it was for. It was to set up Will to because Will was already like a star, quote unquote, and he was kind of made, of course. But this was the first, like, of course, when he when he beat Kotobushi at Wrestle Kingdom that year, like I took him seriously, but I just kind of thought it was like a, a whatever. But when he beat Shingo in the Super Juniors, I was like, oh, they're gonna make him a top guy in this company for real, for real. This is this is the match that like showed me like, oh, they're going with Will as a top star in this company, and that was the reason that they built Shingo up was to elevate will and it it elevated Shingo too, but like it didn't hurt anybody, but like coming out of this match, like will just looked like a world beater. And it's like, Oh, he's the dragon slayer. Like he, he can, he like, this guy's going to fuck people up. Like it's incredible. Yeah. This is awesome. Like you mentioned, incredible build, incredible storytelling, um, a great way to build up a credible threat in Shingo. Great way to build up a, a star in will Osprey and, there were so many mini stories within this tournament as well that led to this final. Like everything about this tournament and this this final was just uh, phenomenally done. Any anything because um, we've recorded record this a few times. What anything that like stuck out to you that you didn't catch the first time? Um, not really. I I feel like yeah, everything was like I remembered it. I, I had nothing really. Stood out differently to me. I feel like I remembered all of these big spots here. Um, for some reason, I don't. I didn't remember uh, Shingo doing the uh, senton dive over the top rope to the outside, mm, where he hits his knee on the the guardrail. Yeah, he gets stuck in the guardrail. Like I don't. I did not remember that. Like that, I popped for that. Also, the Oz cutter on the um, apron where mm. they do the. The seven, Osprey gets in at seventeen. Shingo gets in at nineteen. Like I did not remember that. Like I was like, "Oh, like, yeah." This this match. I mean, you still can't convince me it's better than Ibushi and uh, <laughs> and Jay White as the match of the year last year. Mm. But uh, <laughs> but this this match is just really, really, really incredible. I'm I'm the full five on this. Yeah, me too. And now we would know that Osprey would go on to defeat Dragon Lee for the title. At Dominion and kind of go on a little junior title run there till uh, Wrestle Kingdom. Yep. So we we've got some notes here from uh, Dave. It says uh, this year's best Super Juniors tournament, besides generally considered the greatest ever, was uh, built from the start on the idea of Osprey and Shingo Takagi meeting in the finals. Takagi was pushed as an unbeatable, not having lost a fall in New Japan since signing in October. He went nine and zero, beating Taiji Ishimori in the deciding match on five thirty one in Ahime. Uh, Osprey started strong while Takagi won and was kept strong. Osprey had incredible matches. It didn't matter who, but he lost to El Fantasmo, which was tough because that meant Fantasmo had to lose twice because of the tiebreaker. Then he lost to Robbie Eagles, meaning Fantasmo would have uh, to lose three times. Even though Takagi is Japanese, the story of the tournament was about Osprey as the come-from-behind guy trying to be the dragon slayer. Takagi was positioned as the unbeatable dragon. To say they had a great match does us a disservice. Osprey is a different level, and his promos in their own way are completely compelling. 
Osprey's winning performance was in many ways uh, similar to Omega's becoming the first foreigner to win the G1 in 2016. Omega had two fantastic matches and wins over Tetsuya Naito and Hiroki Goto within 24 hours to become the surprise winner, but it was his promo after the match that established him as a superstar in Japan, even before the first Okada match. This was the, the night that set the stage. Similarly, while you can talk all superlatives about Osprey's tournament and even more about the final match, which I would call the best junior heavyweight match I've ever seen and one of the best matches in any division, but it was the promos, the one after being Taguchi and the other two after being Takagi that drove this one home. As, as great as Jay White is, and he is, and will be positioned as a top guy bearing injury, two straight wins over Tanahashi drives that home. Osprey blew past him at Sumo Hall. As much of a breakup performance as John Moxley had, Osprey left him in the dust. All year, it's been the battle of Osprey over Kento Miyahara as the best in the world. That battle's clearly over. Everyone's fighting for second. Um, yeah, and I would like to say, you know, the one thing that stands out here, we, t- we mentioned earlier, like, how great earlier versions of Will Osprey were, but, like, once you get to 2019 and you see like him as a complete competitor against, uh, you know, one of the best in the world in Shingo, it it is just so amazing. Like how high of a level will Osprey has attained when it comes to pro wrestling. Um, it, even though he won this tournament against Taguchi, you know, back in 2016, that might have established him, but it did not like make him make him this match is like the match that like made him made him. It was like, Oh, Will's here. And he's like, and he'd already been champion, you know, previous to this, he was the champion the year before. Like he, he'd accomplished a lot, but like beating Shingo is like right now, probably like the career highlight of Will Ospreay. I'd say definitely, definitely agree with you there. So that wraps up the final countdown before we close this segment down. We have our top five uh, MVPs, our MBWs, Most Valuable Wrestlers, and then we have our top ten matches of the tournament where we took the average star ratings of Young Boy and I to get um, one top ten list. So first, let's uh, talk about the, the top uh, MVPs, and so we can kind of go back and forth here. So at number five, we have El Samurai. Yeah, I mean... Um you look at his performances and in, in the matches he had, he had a very solid match with uh, Benoit. He had, uh, aside from that, a classic with Liger and then an all time match with Koji Kenemoto, 1997. Um, you know, when, when we look at these MVPs we're, or, you know, most valuable wrestler, we're kind of considering like star power, individual performance, uh, you know, drawing power, um, in ring ability, the story behind it. So there's a lot of criteria here. And, um, I think the other guy we're kind of considering was Taguchi. And I think Samurai just barely kind of edged him out based off the quality of his matches overall. But, uh, for me, I think the reason he didn't place a little bit higher is that in those two matches, the Kenemoto and Liger matches, I think both of those guys came off as the superior performer. And then in the Benoit match, you would have kind of expected it with it being Benoit for that match to have trended higher. And it just kind of didn't. 
And even in that match, Benoit was the superior wrestler. So I, I, while I think Samurai is really great and I think he stands out a lot, I, that's the reason I kind of got him at number five. Yeah, totally agree with you there. Um, yeah, some great matches, but like you said, this wasn't the standout guy in any of those matches, but still delivered great multiple performances throughout this uh, project. Uh, at number four, we have Koji Kanemoto. Yeah, this is a guy that I've been saying has kind of walked away as one of my unknown favorites in seven tournament finals. Um, just having a lot of great, real great matches. We talked about the Samurai match, the match with um, Dr. Wagner Jr., um, the Prince Devitt match. He's had a lot of really good matches, um, pretty consistent, I would say. I mean, he had some really high highs, but then kind of afterwards, he was kind of in that 375, the four-star range, and was still pretty consistent and just multiple appearances, Worked, you know, had adaptable styles with high flying and kind of a shoot style, and um, yeah, overall, just really solid guy throughout this, this project. Yeah, um, with how many uh, appearances he had, it's kind of surprising we never got a Koji Kanemoto Liger final. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, even after, so like the Kanemoto Samurai and Kanemoto Wagner Junior matches are clearly his uh, top end stuff. But I mean, like, I personally really liked the Kendo Kashin match. I also personally really liked the Kakihara match. Um, you know, I do think you see once you get to 1999 from that point forward, you see a pretty steep drop off in terms of star or uh, you know star star rating, uh, you know, quality of the matches. Uh, but with that being said, I mean, Kenamoto was in seven finals. <laughs> and, you know, like Jeremy mentioned earlier in the podcast, even in years where he didn't finish in the finals, he was in, you know, the semifinals or at the top of his block. So, I mean, uh, he was a big star during that, even if it was a down period, like he was always near the top and always all the way up until, what, 2009? Yeah. So, I mean... You know, you talk about that's like a decade uh, where this guy was at the tip, tip top here. So uh, I think the one thing that kind of hurts him a little bit is just, well, A, the guys ahead of him probably had peaked higher when it came to overall match quality. But like he did drop off slightly in some of those matches later on. Yeah. If he had higher, some higher quality matches towards the end there, he probably could have been a little bit higher on the list. He might have had an argument for being, like, close to number one, number two. You know, it's yeah. hard to say. So at number three, we have Kushida. Yeah, and uh, we're going to talk about number two in a second. But I think we, we were, like, at a point where, like, two and three are, like, basically tied. It just depends on how you look at things. But for me with Kushida, this is my personal opinion. I don't think anyone was as consistently high-performing as Kushida. And what I mean by that is the the other two guys we have ahead of him um, probably had, in some cases, better matches or other reasons we ranked them ahead of Kushida. But it, as far as consistently performing at a high level during these finals, you look at his three matches, the Kyle O'Reilly match, the match with Will Ospreay, and then the match with uh, Ricochet, and like he's at such a high level in all three of those matches. All three of those matches are classics like Kushida. You know, he's kind of the guy that helped bring 
junior wrestling the division back. Uh, you know, so I mean, I, I think the one thing is like the fact that he wasn't a bigger star or didn't draw as well as maybe these other two guys when it comes to the finals. The one thing that kept him out, but in terms of like personal performance, he's he's at the top of the list. Yeah, Kashida was uh, phenomenal in his three final appearances and overall had some great uh, tournaments those years and definitely a guy that's going to be missed kind of going forward in this division and what he brought to it. Uh, number two, we have the aerial assassin, Will Ospreay. Yeah, I mean, what can we say, man? Will is phenomenal. We talk about the 2019 match, you know, probably the best overall final match in junior history, junior trial, best super junior history, the, the Taguchi match, and um, the Kushida match. And the Kushida match. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the funny thing is that the Kushida match, when it occurred, people were talking about that being, like, the best junior match in Super Junior's uh, finals history. And then he kind of, like, turned around and topped it uh, a couple years later with Shingo. And not only that, but, like, you look at the match with Taguchi, and it's like, look at the level. Even though, like, he was still green, and look at the kind of, like, performances this guy had. The other thing, too, is, like, under Will... If, if Kushida kind of reestablished this uh, division, Will brought it to newer heights. With you know, once he kind of took over the division, they did bigger business. Overall, the division is healthier. Uh, there, there have been points where people have been like, "Well, what is there left for Will to do?" And it's like, I don't know, but the division is healthy. There was times where Kushida was on top, and it was like. Kind of, it's like when's Kushida going to come off that belt? He's got a stranglehold. <laughs> it's never really been like that with Will uh, too much. The only problem people had was like when he was, uh, you know, wrestling heavyweight instead of while he was the junior champ. But um, I mean, you have to go with Osprey over Kushida. I mean, Osprey had arguably the greatest junior match in history, and you know, brought it brought the. Uh, Division back to a point where they could do Sumo Hall, you know, so I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. So then that leaves us with number one, the top MVP of the tournament, the most valuable wrestler of this final countdown would be Jushin Thunder Liger. Um, multiple tournament final appearances, uh, multiple appearances throughout the tournament. Um, his final matches were, were great. He, um, obviously the, the biggest star to come out of this of these tournaments and um, just a big star, big drawing power, and just the, the the career he had was just incredible. You look at the finals matches he had. He wrestled Honaga. He made Honaga. He wrestled El Samurai. He made El Samurai. Uh, who else did he wrestle? Eddie Guerrero. Uh, at the time, that was the most significant win of Black Tiger or Eddie Guerrero's career at all, period, up mm-hmm. to that point. He helped make Eddie. Delphin. Um, he also, yeah, Delphin. He, like, put Delphin on the map and then, you know, put in a fantastic performance against uh, Minoru Tanaka. Five appearances. That's the second most of anybody. And, you know, the only guy you can kind of compare him to when it comes to appearances is Kenamoto. And you look at... Kenamoto's seven appearances, you compare it to Liger's five, and Liger trends much higher. Business was much better when Liger was on top, more so than any other junior heavyweight 
ever in history. I mean, they were doing huge arenas for these uh, junior super junior tournaments when Liger was on top. The, you listen to the pops that he got. Uh, he was also very giving. Like he didn't win all these tournaments. Like he put over Honaga, gave him the title. Like <laughs> you know, um, the other thing too is like it was very clear with him. Even if his matches didn't live up to the same level, say the Osprey or Kushida matches were, he as a performer was always the standout guy in all the matches he was in. The only one art that you might argue that maybe he wasn't was like the Black Tiger match, him and Eddie. And that's really saying something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and he, they were all classics, every single one of them. And, you know, from a kayfabe perspective, in 2001, he went undefeated and swept the whole tournament. Like, he's the first guy to ever do that. So um, he won the tournament as champion. Like, th- there's a lot of reasons that Liger is still the MVP. I mean, I'm not surprised. So uh, now we move on to the top 10 matches of the tournament. And so, like I mentioned, we took the star rating averages from my star ratings and Josh's star ratings to get this 10 list. So starting at number 10. But before we do this, yeah. do you have any honorable mentions? Uh, for for matches? That that didn't make this top 10. Anything that you like, that, that you feel are like right outside that you liked a lot? Um, I think there were some fringe candidates. Um, I would say like uh, Prince Devitt and Kabu- uh, Kota Ibushi, um, Minoru Tanaka, and um, Liger. Uh, I think you liked Liger Delphin too. Yeah, Liger and Delphin, and yeah, th- those would be See, the only I, ones. I liked Kakihara and um, Kanemoto a lot. I also I really liked Honaga and Liger almost enough to where I feel like the four star that we ended up giving it initially is probably too low, honestly. Mm. But uh, yeah, let's start this off. So at number t- and we've already reviewed these. So we don't even have to discuss them. This is just our definitive list. Um, Ricochet and Kushida at number ten. At number nine, uh, Jushin Thunder Liger and El Samurai. Uh, at number eight, we have Kota Ibushi and Rizuki Taguchi. At number seven, Liger versus Black Tiger. At number six, we have Wagner and Koji Kenamoto. Number five, we have Kushida versus Will Ospreay. At number four, Hiromu and uh, Taiji Ishimori. At number three, Kushida versus Kyle O'Reilly. At number two, we have El Samurai versus Koji Kenamoto. And then number one, the top match of the final countdown, Shingo Takagi versus Will Ospreay. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny. The Samurai and Kanemoto match ended up being like number two. And when I had you re- uh, review that as recommended match, <laughs> you were not that high on it. <laughs> I told you, man. The second time I watched it, man, it was like a different match. Nice. Um, so... That's it. That's the final countdown. We have finally count everything down. Yep, that's it. We're done with this project. Well, we have the bonus episode whenever we can get, uh, as soon as Harold May sends our our footage of the uh, 05 and 08 Best Super Juniors, we will do a bonus episode of that. We're going to be cutting this episode or, you know, all those together and releasing one final countdown episode that is encompassing of all the, uh, you know, 
segments that we've done over the past six weeks. It will be time stamped. It will be awesome. Uh, big shout out and thank you to anybody that assisted us in this project. Chris Sams, uh, Damon McDonald, um, Dylan Fox. Can you? Yeah, Dylan Fox. Uh, God, I like. I don't want to forget anybody in particular. Like, there was a lot of. There's a lot of people that helped us. <laughs> yeah, there's several Reddit users, Twitter followers, people pointing us in the right direction and kind of putting us in the right way. So, yeah, big shout out to everybody who's helped um, help us find footage and get us footage. Uh, big shout out to all of oh. you who've been following along with the project and watching the matches and listening every week. Dan Gennetti, uh and the great Ruki, the guys from uh, Tokan Retsuden, uh, Chris Bryan. Um, you know, from Grumman and Watch the Shit. Just a, a lot of great people that helped us with this. And uh, I'm glad it's over. I'm glad we did it. And, uh, yeah, it was awesome. Yep. So before we uh, head out here, recommended match of the week. Last week I recommended to you the Shibata-Nagata match. I'll keep it short and sweet. I watched it today. I loved it. I think that this is the modern-day epitome of what modern strong-style wrestling is. Um, you know, it, this was sort of like the feud that they ended up having later, either in 2015 or 2016, where it was about Shibata regaining, um, his placement in the company and, you know, earning the respect of the elder generation. Um, and that, that story was kind of told here, but on a smaller microcosm. And so you had, uh, Shibata being disrespectful to you know the older but still very viable um yuji nagata and these guys they kicked the crap out of each other the wrestling was fantastic i watched this and i thought to myself if they did this in an empty arena it would still pop me and still get over because it's so violent um i loved the moment where they're on the outside uh trading elbows until the 19 count and then both had to dive in because they just wanted to kill each <laughs> other yeah that was awesome uh but ultimately nagata picks up the win here with his uh um, bridging Saito suplex and the the match is just visceral. It is violent. It is really crazy. It goes. Uh, I don't remember how long. I went four and a half on the match though. It's that good. And uh, yeah, I loved it. And if you haven't seen it, this might be the best Nagata um, Shibata match. And they've had some bangers. Nice. So what's the uh, recommended match for this week? Oh, I, what I wanted to say was I think that this might be the height, like the next level of like young lines matches, but like done at a higher le- like skill level, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Very dojo oriented. Uh, that was going to be our announcement was that we were going to go on a hiatus with the recommended matches of the week. That's right. For So for the chosen topic are the, the three matches that we pick for the chosen topic will be your quote-unquote recommended matches of the week for you guys to go and watch. So that will be on a hiatus until we kind of finish up with the, the the topic project and New Japan comes back. So, like I mentioned, voting will be live uh, noon Eastern time on Tuesday. So as you're listening to us to this, it probably would be up already. It'll be up for 24 hours this week's uh, poll theme is Bullet Club Leaders, so you'll be voting on Prince Debit, um, AJ Styles, Kenny Omega, Jay White, the winning 
leader. That'll be the episode will be dedicated to that leader. Me, Josh, Chris, Samsa. We will each pick matches and we will kind of do a deep dive on that Bullet Club leader. Also, you know, your questions are welcomed for that about that leader or just you know random questions like we always have. So that's still in play. Awesome. Well, man, it's been a uh, privilege and a pleasure. I'm glad we did this project. Yes, great. So get ready for next week and see who our Bullet Club leader episode is going to be on. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation. SocialSuplex.com slash donate. Click on the donate button under the Keeping a Strong Style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. The show is at KI Strong Style. I'm at Jeremy L. Donovan. You can find us also at Social Suplex on Facebook. We are Facebook.com slash Social Suplex, Facebook.com slash groups slash Wrestling Square to Circle. Also on Instagram, we are at Social Suplex. On Reddit, I am the pro black guy. Y'all just keeping it strong style. You can find us on Discord, Social Suplex. You can email me, Jeremy, at SocialSuplex.com. Check out all the other shows on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We have One Nation Radio hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. Uh, Grown Men Watch This Shit hosted by Jeremy Tate and Chris Bryan. Get in the ring with Danny and Beast Mike. And Saturday's All Things Elite with Floyd Johnson Jr., Amy O., and Tiffany. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating, and review. We'll catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Ichiban. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.